VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It is Friday, May the 5th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Fonsking, he's producing this. Come on with an edition of Open Line. So let's go. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, you know the deal. Socked in solid here again today in the city of St. John's. I wonder how far I have to drive to get a bit of sunshine. Now the price of gas is down, but... I'm like the rest of you. Who can understand what goes on at the PUB? So yesterday there was a drop of 0.8 cents per liter, and now overnight, well, two days ago, and then overnight another drop of 8.2 cents per liter. So good. I mean, I'll take the break at the gas pumps, and I kind of got someone whispered in my ear that that was coming, and I'm running on fumes, so I'll get some gas today. But if anyone can follow along with exactly how these numbers unfold, like we're in the formula. We're in the world of supply, demand, refining capacity, whatever the case may be. Was there back-to-back days where it was less than one cent and then well over eight cents? So anyway, I'll take the break, but I don't get it. Right, so Senko de Mayo. I, of course, got off track yesterday, wishing people may the fourth be with you. Senko de Mayo is fascinating. It's much more an American issue than it is a Mexican issue. But it all goes back, of course, to the Mexican patriots, backed by the United States, led by General Zaragoza took on the French forces at the Battle of Pueblo on May the 5th of 1862. So it was the classic David versus Goliath. So the French were some 6,500 soldiers strong. The Mexicans, about 4,500 men, but they were, well, pardon me, ill-equipped. So between the home court advantage and the mud and the guile, they were able to take on the French. They didn't take it well. Two years later, the French invasion resumed with 30,000 new troops sent in by Napoleon III, and they toppled the Mexican army at that time. But, of course, then at the end of the American Civil War, they armed the Mexicans with weapons and ammunition and volunteers. And in 1867, they were crushed and their puppet head of state was removed or deposed, I suppose is the right word there. But Senco de Mayo. Not great for Leafs fans. If you're a Leafs fan, chime in this morning. So, boy, I tell you, they're just trying to be a little bit too fancy. They played pretty well and uh, Florida goaltender Bobrovsky stood on his head. They gave up two-goal lead. Florida scored twice in the span of 47 seconds, take the game 3-2, and a 2-0 series lead heading back to Florida. Yikes. And the boats are out on Kitty Vitty. You've got to be hardcore. Like, I'm sure my buddies Derek and Fabian and others, they've already had a spin or two in this week. And, of course, they're going to go back to the same plan they had last year with the ability for women to row the long course and for men to row the shorter course, which I think was a big hit. And we'll see if it brings more crews back to the regatta this year. And, of course, massive crowds along the shores of Kitty Vitty for last year's event. And if you're watching the Jays, you're watching them get absolutely battered by the Boston Red Sox. But it was on this date in 1904 that Cy Young pitched the first ever perfect game in modern baseball where his Boston Americans beat the Philadelphia Athletics 3-0. Okay. Off to other issues. More modern day. So we know that the strike has been resolved between Treasury Board, CRA, and the 155,000 members of PSAC. Good. It comes with a big price tag. We all expect it to be somewhere in the neighborhood that was finally negotiated. And now that CRA is back, one of the big stories, I think, is that some people's tax returns will be withheld in part or in full because they got served and they were technically ineligible for it. That's fine. Let's, let's get through some of these numbers here. 
And some of the reports that have been out are not about just straight-up opposition parties or opposition think tanks against the Liberal federal government, but Canada's Auditor General. $4.6 billion in ineligible SERB payments and other benefits paid to individuals. Okay, they also included $27.4 billion in COVID-related spending. Overpayments recipients included 1,522 prisoners, 391 dead people, 434 children who were too young to be eligible. So let's get into it. It's fine. We can talk about the clawback of SERB payments. But what has never been part of the conversation is the number of companies that took advantage, and I don't begrudge them taking advantage of it, because their government was trying to put money in the hands of individuals and businesses to try to help navigate the pandemic. Okay, so the money was there. They didn't ask a whole lot of questions. But we can talk about clawing back the CERB, but where's the conversation about the companies that abused the emergency wage subsidy, of which there are many? The wage subsidy program topped some $100 billion dollars. And there are different groups that looked into some of the companies they got it. For instance, there was $1 billion paid to insolvent companies. And then you look at the 51,000-plus businesses that took advantage of it that possibly, if we were asking more scrutinizing questions, maybe wouldn't have got it, period. So there's a, a group also called the Canadian for Taxpayer, and has found that 37 corporations received the wage subsidy, spent a total of $81.3 billion on dividends, $41.1 billion on share buybacks, and five, uh, $51.1 billion in taking over other companies. They didn't need the money. It was certainly beneficial to companies that were able to keep the doors open because they got that support from the federal government, and that probably makes a lot of sense because if we had to see a bunch of individuals and businesses go bankrupt or insolvent, economic recovery would have been a monumental task. But there's no clawback. No questioning any further. We can see the AG's report. We can see the Canadian Tax uh, for Fairness crowd bring forward their report. But we're talking billions upon billions and billions of dollars that went out the door. And they were never intended for takeovers or share buybacks or for increasing dividends. And the one that always ga uh, galls me is at the Royal Ottawa Golf Club. At their annual general meeting in 2021, they posted a $1 million profit, to which questions came from the membership as, how did we do that? And the... Treasurer said out loud, well, it was the, Can uh, the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy, which was not intended to have a profit for a golf club. So, yes, we can talk about CERB and how many ineligible people got it and the need to recover some or all of those monies. But the wage subsidy, nope, no real conversation there. Why? Because some of these massive corporations just have too big a hammer. Anyway, you want to take it on? Let's do that. Or let's move off to some of these co companies that have a lot of money. So there's a massive drill rig called the Stena Icemax ship, currently on Bay Bulls. They're expected to drill in a property called Aphius for the next two to five months. Here's some of the interest. And this British uh, giant BP is planning to do this particular thing. That's out in the West Orphan Basin. The water's deep, 1.25 kilometers, 400 kilometers northeast, yes, northeast of St. John's. Here's what... This includes, though. Remember, it was just last November that Hibernia, after 25 years of production, had produced over their 1 billion barrels. So, massive. This particular field that's going to be explored by BP, uh, called Efias, just get a load of this. It's being compared to a field in Brazil, a very prolific field, called the Marlin Field. They have roughly 3 billion barrels of recoverable oil. 
They think that this well that BP is drilling out here now has very similar numbers. But just remember, and this is always the case, when the oil companies initially say there's 300 million recoverable barrels or da-da-da-da-da, same thing Beta Nord was supposed to achieve, now they think there's at least a billion barrels out there that they can recover. So just talk about the absolute massive oil field that might be this one that BP is going after. And of course, there will be people saying it's time to stop drilling. We don't need any new production. Some international agencies have said exactly that. Arguments are sometimes very flimsily made with, you know, clean oil. Of course, there's no such thing. Low carbon oil, well, that's all in the eye of the beholder. We can talk about carbon emissions in our offshore. We also have to include all the downstream emissions. Of course we do for a full, clear picture of what it means. But this is a potentially massive find. Now, will there ever be another project approved by this current federal liberal government? It sounds very difficult, you know, if you hear from Stephen Gibo. But at the exact same time, at the last COP27 meetings, this country refused to sign on to an agreement to talk about weaning their country and the companies off fossil fuels. So it's hard to know exactly where they stand, but that potential field, can you imagine if Beta Nord gets approved? And if that particular project ever produces oil with its, who knows, three, five billion barrels of oil, it'd be extraordinary. ExxonMobil also planning to drill in the Jean d'Arc Basin sometime this year, we're told. They'll be out there for some 160 meters of water for 75 days. And EnergyL talks about the jobs. In oil exploration, they say it creates about 400 jobs here in this province. It gets production, that 400 becomes somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000. And yes, the pushback from folks talking about involved in and understanding climate change, very real part of the conversation. So we can take it on, but there's some wild stuff going on there. And then they'll add into it some of the other possible projects, whether it be inside wind and hydrogen. So if there's some sort of concurrent approval for many of these projects, we simply don't even have the horsepower in trades to cover it all off. So you're going to see an awful lot of business come to the province with subcontractors hired because we just wouldn't have the bodies. But I guess that would be a problem that many people would welcome. Anyway, you want to talk about that. That's a big one. All right, and we have discussed many times, because I think the conversation is larger than the soaring costs replaced from Ashley's Penitentiary. Initial money set aside, $200 million. The government's affordability envelope, somewhere around $325 million. But now it looks like the cost, with the one proponent left in the bidding process, in the neighborhood of $520 million. So sole sourcing and needing to go back to the well will bring your thoughts to it wherever you see fit but sticking with the penitentiary some of these things you just i just don't understand it right obviously there's a lot of drugs being distributed sold and used inside the walls of a prison certainly it happens in her majesty's you kind of wonder how they're able to smuggle it in and i'm sure they're pretty clever and do whatever they have to do but inmate pin was found with some 72 grams of different kinds of drugs, Xanax, fentanyl, cocaine, in a body cavity. I think we all know what body cavity that would be. So he's now been charged with the purpose for trafficking cocaine, possession and the purpose of trafficking in fentanyl, possession for the purpose of tra tra uh, trafficking in something I can't pronounce, and failure to comply with the court order. So you wonder how it happened to make its way in, and people know who Phil Pinn is and his long criminal background, convictions in over 100 charges here in the province alone anyway. So moving on to that. And talking drug use. And I know the country, by and large, is not ready for more decriminalization or legalization conversations regarding certainly illicit drugs. And in Vancouver yesterday, as was predicted, this one fellow named Jerry Martin, he planned on selling and was very public about it, 
selling some of these illicit drugs in his mobile drug dispensary. And as soon as he did it, he was arrested for trafficking. Okay, cocaine, crack, methamphetamine, heroin out of this particular thing. He says he was always willing to be arrested because he's talking about bringing forward a constitutional challenge regarding a safe supply of drugs. And Look, I get it. I'll be accused of being an enabler, but if we're going to stand back and be brutally honest about this, people are going to use drugs. They are. And talk about prohibiting and the war on drugs, both have been futile. We've, the North America spent trillions of dollars on it and got absolutely nowhere. So are we ready for a conversation here? You know, let's get some numbers for context here. And this is regarding the number of opioid deaths and hospitalizations in the country. The last stats we have is from January 2016 to September of 2022, there was 34,455 total apparent opioid-related deaths. In addition, there was almost 35,000 total hospitalizations for opioid-related overdoses. So it comes with not only an enormous cost to society, but an enormous cost and strain on the healthcare system. So Health Canada approved the province of BC to allow them to sell, or pardon me, to decriminalize the possession of up to 2.5 grams of opioids, cocaine, meth, and MDMA for British Columbians age 18 and older. Been widely ridiculed right across the country. But I guess the question is, are we more concerned with putting people behind bars? Is it a healthcare issue or a justice system issue? Because the war inside the world of justice simply hasn't worked. I'm by no means encouraging anyone to use an illicit drug, but do you think the reality is if we decriminalize small amounts that you're actually going to see people wake up one morning and say, today is the day, it's heroin for me, let's go. It's highly unlikely. Even just look at the case study, now we have enough time under our belts to look at the legalization of cannabis products. We did not see a spike in usership. Simply did not. Didn't see a spike in people got, that were smoking weed and getting behind the wheel of their vehicle. So some of those worries didn't happen. Even when you thought more and more youth would be attracted to because some of the taboo and the potential of being in trouble with the police had gone away, but we didn't see it. In fact, the age demographic which saw the biggest spike in usership was seniors. So I know that this is a really tricky conversation to navigate, but we're seeing tens of thousands of people die, tens of thousands of people hospitalized, because the drugs are toxic. And add to it what it's just meant, even for pockets or parts of this province. So the folks on Sebastian Court, so for the third time, I think, in the last couple of years, there's been a murder. 25-year-old guy from Trinity Bay, the most recent case. The residents in that area and other notorious pockets or neighborhoods have told the police many, many times over the last number of years that, mark my words, there, some of this is going to happen. We will see deaths. And it's come to pass. And you know, on some streets, they say, look, nobody needs to be a crime sleuth to understand that they're lining up outside drug houses where that's what they're doing. They're selling drugs. Everybody knows it, including the police. So what actually can and needs to be done here? And this is not necessarily about safe supply because the synthetic drugs that people are taking, I don't take them, but people are absolutely zombies. You know, much different than some of the illicit drug use of years ago or decades ago, it's a different world. And so if the residents see it, and now what replaced community barbecues and hanging outside with the kids is people are as quick as they can be, coming and going, keeping their head down, no eye contact, because, of course, the danger and the risks out there are so very clear. So I know those are big ones, but let's talk about it. 
All right, the FFAW calling on the federal government to extend EI claims because there's a bunch of workers that are caught, as they call it, caught in the crossfire. All right, so we can talk about anything under the sun there, so whether or not there should be EI extension so that people are able to make ends meet while they try to figure it out between the processors and the harvesters, most importantly, or I guess more specifically, would be the enterprise owners. And you know the story. You've heard much, a lot about it in the last number of days, or the last number of weeks, I suppose. I still would like to hear from harvesters, and I'm probably not going to because of the potential backlash they'll face if they even say out loud they want to go fishing for 220 pounds. And as I told you yesterday, a couple of people admitted that they simply made up an email address for the sole purpose of telling me, I want to go fishing. And there's many more like me out there. What the numbers would be, I don't know. But surely some. If you've got a million pounds of crab in your IQ, then you're probably ready to go. But the solidarity has ruled the day in this particular case, so we can take it on. And the call for a secret ballot, I know that would essentially undermine the leadership at the FFAW. So the question would be, for the executive members, is it more important for their status to remain or is it more important for some of the people they represent to see the fear of retribution eliminated because they had a secret ballot and if a majority says we're ready to go, then just to let them go with hopefully no fears upon steaming back into port to offload, but we'll take it on and also we can take on the lobster if you're interested. The story of the seals washing up on a number of beaches in Conception Bay South. A scientist has chimed in and said, very likely this is natural causes because some of the pups were just too young to be in the water, couldn't swim. And so whether it be with the ice disintegrating or pans tipping, the number of seals that ended up in the water, then consequently probably crushed by said ice and eventually sunk and then washed ashore. That's too bad, obviously. But then comes the next steps, which is so very frustrating, is about who's going to clean them up. So DFO has said quite clearly, if the carcass is located above the spring tide mark, it falls under municipal or provincial jurisdiction. If the carcass is located below the spring tide mark, it falls under federal jurisdiction. So basically, the feds in the province are going to leave it up to the community of Conception Bay South. Who thinks that there's a municipality that has the human resources that are trained and know exactly what they're doing to safely remove these carcasses, as opposed to the Department of Fisheries and Oceans? with their researchers and their scientists, and, of course, the backing of the federal government and their, their finances. It, this just doesn't make any sense. Imagine drawing a line between the spring tide mark and whatever else about who falls in the proper jurisdiction. Who's going to be the employee or the employees working for the town of Conception Bay South that are going to be charged with cleaning up these animals? I mean, we've told children to stay away from them. We've told the pets, pet owners to keep your pets away from the carcasses. And yes, DFO, it really should be your responsibility. You have the folks who are professionally trained and know what they're doing. Yeah, imagine, I'm working in the maintenance department at Conception Bay South, and my, the gig on my job, uh, listing for the next day, cleaning up dead seals. I suppose it could be done, but anyway, it doesn't make sense to me that, that we're, that's where it should fall. All right, so over the weekend... The coronation of the king. Haven't heard much from anybody on it, but I'm sure there's lots of people who are interested in taking in the pomp and the circumstance over the next weekend while there's going to be a variety of celebrations. So if you are so inclined or you think it's time to talk about dismantling the monarchical uh, representation in this country, we're happy to take both on. But interestingly, King Charles III will no longer be referred to as inside what they call the old accolade of defender of the faith, but does come with quite the mouthful of a title. The monarch will be officially known in this country as Charles III, by the grace of God, King of Canada, and his other realms and territories, head of the Commonwealth. 
So there's lots to talk about inside of that world. And, of course, the Sport of Kings, the Derbies this weekend, Kentucky Derby. On this date, even if you never saw a horse race in your life, you probably know the name of this horse. So on this date in 1973, Secretariat won the Kentucky Derby, the first in the uh, Triple Crown. So, of course, a legendary horse. Secretariat went on to win not only Kentucky at Churchill Downs, but at Pimlico at the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes was the final of the Triple Crown Jewels. Belmont, of course, longer track than the other two. And if you can remember, or you've ever seen the video, Secretariat won the Belmont that year, trained by a Canadian, Jockey Ronnie Turcott, won the Belmont by 25 lengths. It's an amazing sight to behold, but that's this year, uh, that's this weekend as well. And we can talk about the 2024 now being deemed the Year of the Arts, some of the questions about it came out of nowhere, and the construction of a new mid-sized theater. I'm not saying it's not needed or can't be supported, but it's interesting that there's a couple of private bills in addition to that. I heard Bob Haller from Terra Bruce, and I think he makes a good point here. The Reed Theater, which is laid dormant uh, at Memorial University, that really can and should be refurbished with a fraction of the cost versus new construction, so there's a lot we can talk about on that front. And good luck to the people who are nominated for East Coast Music Awards, including our very own Greg Smith, nominated for Media Person of the Year. But we took home a couple last night. Kelly Loder won three ECMAs last night. Uh, fan Choice, Entertainer of the Year, Songwriter of the Year, and the Fortunate Ones took home an ECMA as well in the Folk Recording of the Year for That Was You and Me. Congratulations to those, and good luck to the rest. All right, we're on Twitter. We're BOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofbocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to wrap up the week. That means you're in the queue. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Go to Bloomfield. Good morning, Adam Furlong. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome back. Hey, uh, yeah, just wanted to talk about, I know you made a brief mention about it yesterday, the private member's resolution regarding Crown Lands that was tabled in the House of Assembly on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to start by saying that for anyone listening, I am in no way a partisan person. I know there's plenty of people out there who support one party or another, no matter what. I do not. I voted PC, I voted Liberal, I voted NDP, and I support whichever party and whichever individual politician seems to be a good candidate to to make this province a better place for the people who live in it. So on Wednesday, the official opposition, the PCs, brought forward a special member's resolution for debate in the House of Assembly. Uh, this proposal would have seen policy directives come into place that would see the issues surrounding private citizens' legal title problems on their land get some help and get some attention. Uh, Several members stood up to talk about the issues surrounding Crown land. Uh, The PCs, the Liberals, the NDPs, and independent members all agreed that it's a major problem that needs to be addressed. And after a couple hours debating the proposal and bickering over some minor wording changes, the House was finally asked to stand up and vote on whether this proposal should be acted on to move forward with fixing the problem. Every single non-liberal member in the House voted to support the proposal. That was 16 votes. Every single liberal member voted against the proposal. That was 19 votes. Now, I'm I'm really sick and tired of all the 
party politics and just blindly towing the party line. I mean, there's no way that you can tell me that all 19 Liberal members in the House disagreed with that proposal to fix this problem. There are almost definitely Liberal members who voted against this proposal who have friends or family members who are affected by this issue. No question. And I know for, I know for a fact that there are plenty of residents in this province who live in the districts that are represented by Liberal MHAs who are dealing with this issue in the past or right now. And residents that they have been elected to represent, they do not represent their party. They represent the people in the districts that they were elected in. And for anyone listening, if you live in one of these communities or a surrounding community, Harbour Grace, Carboneer, Fogo Island, Placentia, Southwest Arm, St. Mary's, Gander, Buren, Marystown, or pretty much any community on the Durham Peninsula, there's a really good chance that you have land title issues with the land that you believe is yours, whether you're aware of it or not. And your elected MHA stood up in the House of Assembly on Wednesday and put their name forward as a vote against a motion to fix these issues for you. And that does not sound like an effort to represent the best interests of the people that they have been elected for. Well, you know, whipped votes are part of the problem in politics. But if you're inside one party or another, you know, party solidarity is also pretty important to keeping everything on track or everyone in line. I don't defend it because I think it's an absolute problem. And every time we see someone step outside of it, whether it be recently Ken McDonald as a federal liberal or remember former MP Scott Sims speaking out against the attestation for the summer job grant uh, program. And, of course, then he lost his position as the chair of the Standing Committee on Fisheries and Oceans. So there's always going to be some punishment. But to your point, that doesn't mean that they're doing their best to represent their constituents. That means they're doing their best to represent their political stripe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the people in those districts have voted to elect them to represent the people in those districts. And the people in those districts have this land title issue that... Their MHA is supposed to be there to help them solve these problems, and they're, they're not. They're doing the exact opposite. I mean, my district here is represented by a PC member, so it's not uh, what I just described as one of the MHAs who have voted to not fix this problem. But I, I spoke of my hometown before being entirely considered crown lands. My parents' property where I grew up, my great-great-uncle built a house on that property round about 176 years ago, in around the year 1847. And this land was owned by a previous generation of my family prior to that, but I haven't been able to trace back my family line farther than that yet. Um, that house was later relocated to a different area in the community on more land that my family owned. And at that time, my grandfather used that property to graze animals and grow vegetables for a period of time. My parents built their house on that property 40 years ago on land that was owned close on 200 years by my family. And according to Crown Land and the policies contained in the Lands Act, my parents don't own that land. And, 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 and the whole notion that the liberals are hanging their hats on here, that they're they're talking about decreasing this 20-year time frame from 1956 to 76, decrease that down to a 10-year time frame from 1966 to 76. 
it is a completely pointless exercise. It, 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 it might solve a very small number of cases who have this problem in this province, but it won't help the previous owners of my property here. It won't help the Diamonds in Catalina. It won't help my family or anyone in my hometown. It's nothing but an illusion of them doing something to fix the problem. I mean, you're looking at over 500 years of people living in this province, and you are only concerned with a 20 and now maybe a 10-year time frame of occupying a piece of property. That is all that you care about for agreeing whether or not somebody owns that piece of property. Yeah, and we are following up on it, not only the private member's resolution and its failure in the House of Assembly, but just to give some more legal teeth to what we're discussing and the ramifications and the potential fixes. I've also been in contact with Greg French, of course. He's the lawyer in Clarenville who's been dealing with legal uh, Crown land matters for quite a long time, and he's going to hopefully make time for the program this morning to react to not only okay. the failure of the uh, private member's resolution, but also whether it be inside of Section 36 and the quit claim versus the grant and the whole issue between uh, uh, the 20-year window for ownership proof, like everything that we can try to attend to this morning with Greg French, we will. Oh, and that's great because uh, I mean, obviously, Greg is probably the most knowledgeable person about this issue yeah, on, the, on the island. So, yeah, no yeah, doubt. So, I, I don't really know where it goes from here. I mean, uh, with a, with a majority liberal government, they kind of just do whatever they want. So the. Uh, the official opposition's private member resolution that they brought forward has been voted down and, and it's kind of just dead now. So I guess that the Liberals are just going to move forward with their reduction from 20 years to 10 years, which is not going to solve the problem. And then everyone's just left in the same situation that they're currently in. So I don't, I don't really know what else is going to happen to try to fix this problem. I don't know, but the point you made that without question, some sitting uh, Liberal members have friends or family and plenty of constituents that are dealing with this issue quite frustratingly. So we'll broach that with Mr. French uh, when we come back. I appreciate you chiming in this morning, Adam. Hope you're well. You too. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Adam Furlong. And, of course, his issue as a, a farmer, and he's still arguing over about an acre of land and some of the offers that have come from the province to Mr. Furlong so that he can actually maximize his business model for his uh, agricultural project. Mind-boggling. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line. On VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number 10 and say good morning to the NDP Member of Parliament elected in and serving the folk of Vancouver Kingsway. That's Don Davies. And good morning, Don. You're on the air. Great to be with you, Patty. Happy to have you on the show. Uh, right off the bat, Mr. Davies, so you're being listed here on my call screen as the NDP's uh, health critic. I know you're a part of the Standing Committee on Health and part of your official roles of the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, but you are the health critic, are you? I am indeed. Okay, so, you know, it's always been an interesting disconnect between the federal government and the provinces. The federal government, by and large, have been just simply involved in negotiating what would be a health care transfer dollar and leaving all jurisdictional and operational issues to the province. What do you see the future of the federal government's role here? Because now what we've done, we've increased the transfer dollar, but all that's probably achieved is a bidding war between provinces and territories for health care professionals. Well, that, that, that's a great question, Patty. Um, you know, I think one thing that everybody agrees, no matter who you are, what level of government you're at, is that our 
our national health care system is in under serious strain. In fact, I think the word crisis is probably not too strong a word. So um, what I would say is that that's going to require all levels of government to step up their game, and that includes the federal government. You know, people often think that health care is provincial. It's not. You won't even find the words health care in the Constitution. They don't exist. Um, now, it's true provinces are responsible for delivering most of the frontline services, but the federal government has got the spending power, it's got the criminal law power, it's got the peace order and good, good government power, and they're a very important player. So what I would like to see is the federal government strengthen and improve its involvement. It's got to kick in more resources, but it also plays an important role, Patty, in in uh, coordinating national solutions. You know, we got 13 different provinces and territories all struggling with the same issues, and very often they're duplicating things. It's a waste, and I think we can play a stronger role in in, in sort of sharing solutions across the country. I think it's time for the federal government to get involved in an exercise we've undertaken in this province, which we call the Health Accord, and it's the hopes to transition or transform healthcare delivery in the province. There hasn't been a, a human resources evaluation for decades. Healthcare has changed, not only in delivery, but in the needs of the people. So we don't want to diminish the role of the provincial colleges of physicians, what have you, but even things like national accreditation. If I'm licensed to practice as a doctor or an LPN in British Columbia, I shouldn't have to go through anything except fly to St. John's to perform as the exact same role in this province. So maybe on that front there could be some federally-led initiatives because, you know, all these provincial barriers are more manufactured than they are realistic, so I would start there. That's an excellent suggestion, and frankly, it's one of the lead requests of the Canadian Medical Association. They want national licensure, not only for doctors, by the way, but for nurses sure. and all sorts of healthcare professionals, you know, your body is the same in St. John's as it is in Winnipeg or Vancouver. Uh, the healthcare systems are the same and, and the, the medicine is the same. Uh, and now when you have virtual care, let's say you've got a, a doctor in St. John's who um, may, want, may want to do a consult on a, on a patient in uh, Nova Scotia. You can do that kind of thing virtually now, but you're restricted by these silly provincial barriers. So you're absolutely right that that's something that we've got to change. There's also the concept of, you know, doctor shortages. How many hundreds, if not thousands, of Canadian residents or citizens have done their medical training abroad and they can't get a residency? There's dozens of stories out there. That, of course, is the medical schools and the local colleges. They want to ensure that the opportunities for their med school graduates, of which there's only 17 med schools in the country, that their grads get first crack at residency. But expanding the residency program could and should include someone who's a Canadian who went to Trinity College in Dublin. Certainly the education is on par with anything taught in this country. So we've just got a couple of solutions that are out there that we have to remove some of the territorial clout that some colleges and provinces are exhibiting and make it more realistic absolutely you know i think the last figure i saw patty was six million canadians don't have a family doctor and about uh about 30 percent have been looking for a year and 29 percent have given up looking now when the family doc is your main portal into the healthcare system that's a serious problem for a national healthcare system and your uh you know the health committee we just did a study it, it uh, just came out on the healthcare human resources uh, crisis, and that was exactly one of I think we had about twenty five recommendations, and that was one of them is the the ridiculous bureaucracy and inability to swiftly and accurately get trained people into practice is uh, and it 's low hanging fruit 
It's something that is, it's, there's no reason for it, and that includes foreign trained doc Canadians who are uh, getting trained elsewhere. It also in- includes getting people who uh, immigrate to this country. We give them points for their medical training, and then they come here and we don't allow them to practice. So we have to get foreign credentialed uh, um, healthcare workers into the workforce quicker as well. And of course, your party in the agreement you have with the federal liberals were able to achieve a long pledged uh, policy by the NDP, and that's dental care. And many people understand how it's uh, supposed to work, but there are some questions about how it dovetails with some provincial matters. But I want to ask you a question a little closer to home. And this is regarding there was an arrest made in Vancouver yesterday by this fellow, Jerry Martin, who always pledged he was going to sell illicit drugs in his mobile drug dispensary, whether it be cocaine, meth, heroin, uh, crack, what have you. So Health Canada has given the province of British Columbia the ability to decriminalize small amounts of possession, 2.5 grams of the, the aforementioned drugs. Are illicit drugs a healthcare conversation or a justice conversation? Well, I think they're both. I think they're both. Um, I think uh, what Canadians have, are teaching politicians in the last few years is that addiction and substance use are primarily a health issue. Um, and now the thing, I, you know, I come from Vancouver, I come from British Columbia, where we're leading the country in deaths every year from from uh, from overdoses. And the prime cause of that is a toxic street supply. And so uh, it's been recommended over and over again that what we got to do is, uh, if people are going to use drugs and we don't want them to, it's unhealthy. We need to put way more money into prevention and treatment. We have to be discouraging people from using drugs. But if they're going to use them, then I think that it makes common sense that we have those people access those drugs from at least a safe, uh, known concentration source. That might be pharmacies or whatever, but buying them from organized crime on the streets, uh, I think we know where that goes, and we've got decades of, of evidence of that. So um, I do think it's a social justice issue. I think it's a health issue, but whatever we're doing is not working because we've got record levels of Canadians dying from toxic drugs. And, and I think we can, we can and must do better. Realistic uh, decriminalization policies in jurisdictions around the world are always coupled with very strong harm reduction policies. The only place that I think the criminal justice system needs to be involved here is with people who are selling it, not people who are using it. Because we're, you know, for, at some point, addiction can be overwhelming regardless of your socioeconomic status, your place in this world. And some of the prescriptions are, pardon me, some of the addictions, uh, their origin is on a doctor's prescription pad. So we've just got to figure this out. Just for context for people, once again, from June, uh, January 2016 to September 2022, almost 35,000 total apparent opioid-related deaths, almost 35,000 total hospitalizations. So we are just standing idly by and letting people suffer in silence in the shadows. And it just makes very little sense to me. I don't know if the country is ready for that level of conversation, but there we are. Someone wants me to ask you this very quick one before I have two more questions for you. We're the only democratic country in the G7 or G20 that does not have a national school lunch program. It's remarkable to me that so many young people rely on going to school for a healthy meal. You know, we have a really robust breakfast program in this province. School lunch is trying hard to achieve same status. But we need a national program here because it's not just about the food. It's overall impact on health. 100%. And uh, I actually have introduced bills twice in the last two parliaments to establish a national nutrition school uh, food program. And uh, in fact, in the last election, both the NDP and the Liberals, by the way, we both pledged a billion dollars. We did it over four years, Liberals over five years, to establish such a program. And uh, even though we keep pushing Liberals and pushing them and pushing them to keep their promise, they haven't done it. And and it's it's a crying shame because... Uh, these are our children, 
it's uh, not only an equity issue. I mean, don't we want our kids uh, to be in school, at least with one one nutritious meal? And I, I applaud Newfoundland for their and Labrador for their leadership on that. Um, they learn better. But also teaching kids proper nutrition um, uh, and the opportunity to, to get them on a good path will save the healthcare system oodles of dollars down the road by, you know, avoiding childhood obesity, uh, um, avoiding uh, type 2 diabetes and other things. So uh, as, as your uh, very astute uh, uh, caller pointed out, uh, Canada is one of the few countries of, of our kind of wealth that doesn't have such a program, and uh, we have to get one implemented as soon as possible. No question. You know, the ability to absorb the curriculum, to control emotional outbursts, fewer calls home, mom, your son has or, or your daughter has a sore tummy. So there's nothing but upside there. And whoever pushes back about feeding children, that's a strange political stance to take. Last one before I do have to go, Mr. Davies. As a member of the... Uh, National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. I know I heard from your leader, Jagmeet Singh, talking about he doesn't not have faith in the uh, appointed special rapporteur, which is former Governor General David Johnston, but quite clear in saying that a public inquiry is the only way forward to protect the integrity of these democratic institutions and people's faith in elections. If there is no public inquiry as a result of Mr. Johnson's evaluation, his report is due on the 23rd of this month, would that bring an end to the NDP support for the federal Liberals? Well, that's a decision above my pay grade, uh, that's for sure. But I'll tell you, it would be a serious mistake, I think, if uh, Prime Minister Trudeau does not call a public, transparent, searching inv- uh, investigation and inquiry. We've been calling for that from the beginning. It's the only way we're going to clear the air. Canadians have to have confidence in their elections and democratic institutions. And uh, I sit on NCCOP, by the way. And, um, you know, th- uh, although it does good work, NCCOP and CIRA and the Special Rapporteur are not a public inquiry. And so I'm, I think uh, uh, Mr. Johnson is supposed to report out uh, later this month, May 23rd, I think. We'll see what he recommends the Prime Minister. But no matter what he recommends, the Prime Minister has the ability and the authority to call a public inquiry, and we're going to continue to do that. And by the way, it can't be limited just to China. It's got to look at foreign interference. I don't care where it comes from, who, uh, whether it's India, whether it's Russia, whether it's Iran, whether it's U.S., whether it's even... Um, uh, you know, uh, organizations that are working, funded through governments. we got to get to the bottom of this, clear the air, and I think only a public inquiry will do it, and that's what the NDP has been calling for. I'm still not sure that people have established the veracity of claims about a Chinese diplomat taunting the family of Michael Chong in China, or the 11 so-called members and the support financially and as uh, volunteers, or Han Dong, or any of these things. It's all floating around in the ether, but I'm not so sure we know a whole lot more about it than other some of the headlines that people have latched onto. I appreciate your time, Mr. Davies. Good luck with your town hall. If you want to tell us the details very quickly about your uh, work with Jim Din coming up this weekend. That'd be great. Yeah, I'm being joined by uh, NDP leader Jim Din and Mary Shortle, who is a special advisor to the NDP. We're meeting at 1 p.m. at the Hub on Mary Meeting Road. It's a town hall. I hope uh, people are welcome to come out and give us their views. I really want to hear from people from Newfoundland and Labrador on 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 their experience with healthcare and what solutions they want us to bring to the national stage. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for yours. Take care. Bye-bye. Stan Davies, he's the NDP member for Vancouver Kingsway. Very quickly before we get to the break, I want to say the happiest of birthdays to a faithful listener, Brent Porter. Hope you have yourself a great day, Brent. Happy birthday to you. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. 
Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to Clarenville Lawyer, one of the most, I think, uh, most informed voices on the issue of Crown Lands in the province. That's Greg French. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So we saw that the uh, opposition party through Plea Enforcy brought forward a private member's resolution regarding Crown Lands that didn't make it through. Of course, all members of the sitting Liberal government voted against it. What did you make of the content of the uh, private member's res? Well, Patty, I think it's uh, important that everybody know exactly what that resolution said. So I'm going to read it. It's only short, uh, the end part, the be it resolved. Be it resolved that this Honourable House urge the government to move expeditiously to bring forward legislative amendments to ensure fair reconciliation of existing claims for people seeking title to the land they have occupied in good faith for generations and which is recognized within their communities and to take steps in the interim to address Crown Lands actions against occupied properties in this province. That's what the resolution was that failed. Which is not asking for the earth and the sun above, it's simply asking for expeditious uh, approach to uh, fix what is obviously a broken system. So inside of that, you know, the government has made some minor adjustments, uh, shortening the window from 20 years to 10, which feels like much more like smoke and mirrors than anything pragmatically important. Where do we start? Well, first off, the government hasn't changed anything yet. And what I found most interesting in watching the debate is that there's not one member who stood up in the House and justified the current system, because it's unjustifiable. Even liberal members who spoke, Elvis Lovelace and Brian Moore, Brian Moore said of the first 50 calls he got as an MHA, 37 of them were Crown Lands issues. And he took a position that the Crown Lands issues are really nobody's fault. It's a historical anomaly, and something needed to be done. Even uh, Minister Lovelace, who made uh, proposed amendments to the resolution to soften the language a little bit, he didn't seem to take any position that, no, everything is 100% right and hunky-dory with the current approach. There is no justification for the current approach. One thing I did find interesting, Patty, and it didn't come up in the House, But uh, the summary of the public consultations that the government undertook back in uh, January and February was released on May 2nd, the night before this debate came to the House. And I don't think anybody but me read it, but uh, it was a fascinating read because in the public uh, consultations, which brought in lawyers and realtors and surveyors and interested members of the public, again, not one justification of the status quo. Everybody agrees the system is broken, and the fix, I mean, the fix could be, is, could be done in a few minutes, even with just a minor policy change, while we're working out the kinks of the legislation, because anything to do with changing legislation, it's like wishing on a genie's lamp. If you don't phrase it exactly right, you're going to get some weird unintended consequences. So I can appreciate the need for caution, but at the same time, uh, as Mr. Party said in the House, There are constituents of his that are going to trial in six weeks against the government of Newfoundland to get their own houses. There are multiple constituents who have court dates starting in June and trials booked where they are going to have to spend thousands of dollars to fight the government on an issue that everybody on both sides of the House would seem to agree is a problem, but we can't even get a stopgap measure to fix this. What would a stopgap measure look like? Because I appreciate the point that you have to be cautious with the wording of legislation that required due diligence. So what's a a stopgap measure that can make life easier for individuals in particular dealing with Crown Lands? 
Well, right now, legislation as it is, I mean, if we change it, yes, that's going to have some collateral impacts and probably some unintended ones. But as a stopgap measure, right now, I've, I did a count. There are 10 quietings that I'm aware of right now before the Supreme Court of Newfoundland where the only opposing party is Crown Lands. I think the minister needs to go down and actually look at these quietings and see what his department is doing to take a position, uh, to take a look at the position they're taking and see, is this in the public interest? Is this a good use of our judicial resources? Is this a good use of the Department of Justice's time? Is this really something we should be objecting to? And to introduce, I suppose, a policy change, because when people are going to Crown lands and trying to straighten out their land, unfortunately, you know, the people being punished here are the ones who are trying to do it right. The people who are coming forward and saying, look, I want to get, uh, I want to get this fixed proper. I want to go on the books. I want to be on, recognized by the government as the owner here. And that's when the government turns around and says, you don't own this. And by the way, you have to pay market value, which, you know, you're going to have to drop any claims you have to your land before we'll even tell you how much it's going to cost to get it. Yeah, that's, you know, sounds patently unfair. If I've been living on a, a plot of land for 40 years, maybe market value of 40 years ago might be a little bit more fair than market value today. And, of course, then it really requires some evaluation of where this property is because that floating target might make it manageable for someone living in a smaller, more rural, isolated community versus living closer to an urban center where some of the land value is really quite extraordinary because, as they say, they're not building, they're not making any more land. Well, the interesting thing here to me is that um, the Crown's objections and the Crown's approach to this kind of reminds me of the dog chasing the car. They don't know what to do when they get it, because let's be realistic here. I don't think there's any political appetite within government to go out and actually force people from their homes. Mr. Furlong was on, and he spoke about uh, the diamonds up in Catalina. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a house that's been there for 40 years, taxes paid. This poor couple has been trying to sell this house for two years. It's the government that's tying them up. What happens if the government beats them in court? Is the government going to force them from their houses with no compensation? Is the government going to take them to court and demand $100,000 for it? Of course not. But why is it that we're stuck dickering about on this when, realistically, we're not going back to the days of the fishing admirals going community to community burning down houses? So are you willing to opine or surmise why the government is willing to take on these actions in court, given that I'm not so sure they'll know what to do, even if they're victorious as well? I suppose what it is, it's a very strict reading of the law that's the problem here. And as, uh, as Mr. Party said, and his comments hit it out of the park as far as I'm concerned, in addition to his uh, above-average karaoke version of The Gambler, which was most welcome in the uh, debate... I think, um, you know, what we're looking at here is the law is being enforced as the law is written. And to that end, I can't fault the good people at Crown Lands for enforcing the law as it's written. We don't want, uh, you know, we don't want case-by-case -case determinations being made on the whims and caprices of bureaucrats. But at the same time, the only way the system is going to work is if we can get to that point where someone can look at this and apply a bit of common sense to say there's no public benefit to it. So unfortunately, what we have is kind of a RoboCop situation where, you know, the law says this, the law must be enforced, ergo, everyone's going to court. And if we win, you know, I suppose that's going to cause a system error because they don't know what to do if they're going to win. Like, what is the next step? I don't think uh, there's no justifications to the status quo. So I certainly don't think there's any appetite to actually enforce it as written. 
I, I guess like on the criminal side of legal of the legal system, a plea bargain is part of the process. Maybe it could be part of the process here before we entertain uh, courtroom time and the associated cost. Um, that just pops in my head. That might make no sense at all. Um, with the concept of paying municipal taxes, and for the diamonds some 40 years, how should that factor in? Well, I mean, you're looking at a branch of government here. You're looking at a sub-provincial level of government. I mean, this is established by the province. A municipal council has certain authorities. In the City of St. John's Act, for instance, crown land control is vested in the City of St. John's. So the City of St. John's seemingly has the power to work these things out in its own municipal council. No other municipality in Newfoundland has that authority. So we're looking at a level of government here that recognizes someone as the owner. The Municipal Assessment Agency, which is a branch of government under the Department of Municipal Affairs, assesses property owners for property tax. So we have another branch of the provincial government saying, these are the owners of the land, these are the people who should be paying taxes on the land. You go to the Registry of Deeds, which is under uh, Service NL, which is a completely different branch of government, and they keep the Registry of Deeds records, the private transactions between individuals. And their records might bear no recognition to the municipal records because people aren't registering their deeds, stuff is changing hands on a handshake, someone just takes over mom's house when she dies. And then there's, you know, the the elephant in the room, the Crown Lands Department under Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture, whose records bear virtually no resemblance to reality on the ground. So, I mean, we've got three branches of government tripping over themselves with uh, contradictory records, and there's no one taking a practical approach to say, look, here's what the reality is on the ground. I'd say municipal affairs and municipal records are the closest to hitting the target because at least they're keeping up on who's paying taxes and who owns land, and they're sending out annual assessments that people are paying. So municipal records are probably the most accurate in the province, but <laughs> but they have no... Uh, authority to deem someone to be the owner of it. You come forward and pay your taxes, it doesn't mean you own the land, but in my view, you know, if you're honestly and in good faith paying a government taxes as recognition of your ownership of land, that should count for something in the grand scheme of things when you're trying to straighten it out. And I will say, Patty, down in the United States, that does count, that for quieting a title's actions, paying taxes on property for seven to ten years is sufficient to get title whether you set foot on the land or not. I've done uh, some extensive research on that in consultation with uh, colleagues down in the states and I know for instance that's the law of the state of Washington. Interesting and it should count for something in this province and across the country. You know the number of silos and government departments or agencies that deal with the one sole issue that number of silos belong on grain farms, not inside of government. We're just too much opportunity for left hand, right hand to be living in two different universes. Uh, last comment to you, Greg, before I have to take a break for the news. Sure. Well, one other thing. I mean, Crown Lands is vested with the control of ownership of the land. And as came up in the House, and I believe it was Minister Lovelace's comment, that uh, they have to go through consultations with almost a, gov a dozen government departments. This is for the simple question of whether or not someone can own the land, not what you can do with the land. What you can do with the land is a different question. It seems like there's tremendous, tremendous bureaucratic overlap that does not need to be to answer the one question that's being asked. Who owns this land? Crown Lands, being responsible for all land in the province, can make a determination on its own without going to heritage, without going to water resources, without going to any other department to say, yes, this land belongs to person X. 
What that what person X can do with the land, that's a question for heritage. That's a question for water resources. I think there needs to be a full top-to-bottom review of how the process is working to shape it out. But I think in the meantime, there needs to be a much quicker and a much shorter resolution because in six weeks' time, there are many Newfoundlanders who are about to start going to trial who don't need to be for any purpose. Really appreciate the time this morning, Greg. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Greg French. Uh, lawyer dealing with Crown Matters, Crown Land Matters extensively, as you could hear from his informed commentary this morning. Very quickly before the news, happy birthday to Dean McCarthy from your grandmother, Ray, and congratulations on your Duke of Edinburgh Award. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Claude, you're on the air. Hello, Paddy. Hello there. Yeah, I'm, I'm calling from Mount Pearl. I'm a fisherman. And I'm a first-time caller. I got an overview of uh, what's going on in the crab fishery. And I got a solution. And I hope I appreciate it. Just give me a time to read off some pointers here. We will interrupt you, my buddy. Then you can ask me whatever you want. Okay. Okay. But like in the old system, from the ground fisheries on the go, FPI had a marketing arm. So situated in Boston, they had brokers situated right throughout the states. That made the, that's how they controlled the marketing of fish throughout right from the time was caught right to the market. Now you got a situation that's often dissolved. Now you got a situation privately owned brokers are manipulating the market. They're controlling the supply of crab coming in, they're skimming the money off the, the top, and that's what's creating the mess. The manipulation has been going on. It's not new. It's going to go for years. Newfoundland crab traditionally over the years now have been selling something for 25 to 50% discount from what it is in the Maritimes. And the brokers are, are owned and are working with certain processors here in the province, and that's responsible for that. And over the years, they've ripped off millions of dollars out of the pockets of the fishermen, the plant workers, the citizens of the province, and the government. The solution, but there is a solution there. It requires an acknowledgement. But the problem is the cooperation from the groups involved and we need leadership and more or less we need government intervention. That's who owns the Trump character to this. I'll tell you the solution. My proposal contact an independent brokerage firm to market all Newfoundland crab that bought caught in Newfoundland and put it to market. Set a price that's profitable to the fishermen and the processors, whatever that is, we could be hashed out. And use this as a base price on freezer for a full year. That will allow the demand to consume excess supply in the market. All new buyers coming into the market will have an option to buy at the same price all year. That will lure them away from people. Other uh, brokers who are just putting down the price for one minute and driving up next. You put the price steady, you compete well in the market, you undermine your brokers who are trying to manipulate the market. Then you build up a loyal customer base for the restaurants, the, crowd, the cruise liners, and all other customers. That's the solution. And we got. Just in order for an implementation, you need a government who's going to come in and step in up to the plate and say that then, you know, a response to you, they can't do nothing about, you can't do nothing about the market, but you can do people, you can do something against people who are manipulating it. The Premier and all of them have got the responsibility to act on this, just the responsibility to people of the province. The stake, you know, the viability of a 500 year old industry is at stake here. And just saying you can't do nothing about it, that's not good enough for anybody. It's what you, all of you, MHAs, that's what you were elected for. You've got a responsibility for people with problems to find a solution to this. Okay. So 
Look, I agree in full regarding FPI, and I've said it many times, sir. The worst part about that company being broke up was selling off the marketing arm, which is extremely effective and absolutely required. There is renewed call for a marketing board specifically on crab because I suppose that's what the species is in the conversation these days. So I don't dispute where you're coming from because government cannot get involved in the market, but they can sure get involved in marketing. Yes, they, get, they hold a processing license. You know, they hold control of the processing license. Both processors, they are the ones who are working with the brokers in the States to manipulate the market. They only see they get private corporations set up for the active brokers. They buy up all the supply and then squeeze it off the supply to drive the price up on the market. That's what they're doing. Now they're going to do jobs away and try to drive it down. So they buy, any, buy the in, all the bread comes to shore in only a couple of months of the year. They know this. We, we can. You get the sellers in the first the first couple of months of the year. Once the price goes up, after they can sell at a high profit. That's what they do. Yeah. Now that hasn't necessarily been the case over the last number of years, but the the issue of how the government gets involved here. Like, if you say, for instance, and I've heard people tell me this in the recent past, that if the processors aren't going to buy the crab or are not going to buy the lobster, pardon me, or are not going to get involved in a higher price for harvesters and crab, then we withdraw their processing license. But I get that bit of venom. But who's to say it's any different with another processor that takes up that license? Because they'll have the exact same motivation to maximize profits, the exact same motivation to ensure they get top dollar at whatever point during the uh, the calendar year for crab or anything else. So I think that bit of that kind of comes across to me as more of a vendetta than it does a solution because the processors act like processors because they want to make as much money as possible. And the same as the harvesters. So that's not an insult or uh, a criticism of either side because that's what drives them. That's what motivates them. That's why they invest in the plant. That's why they invest in their vessels and invest in their crew for the exact same reasons, right? But that's why they, they, that's why they came up with this. Their solution is sell to their own independent brokerages in the, in the U.S. or whatever, set up private corporations so nobody gets to look at the books or whatever they're, 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 the skullduggery they're doing. And that's why they're skimming the money off the top. You know what I mean? But if you set up your own marketing firm and make a mandatory, you got to sell to this firm. You can't sell to your own broker. You get to sell to our broker. Like something like, something like, they had to do this back years and years ago with the weeds out west. People manipulating the market, same thing. That's the only way they do. They were trying to drive through the farmer in the business out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I get that concept. I wonder how that factors into how the actual structure of the economy is in this country with telling privately owned business exactly what you can do, who you can sell to, and just that sort of level of dictate come from the government poses a lot of potential problems. Though I know where your solution-driven commentary is coming from, Claude. I completely appreciate what you're trying to accomplish here. But we get into a spot where, where does that end? Where does government end? Like, for instance, are they going to get involved in telling us who we can take on as advertisers, who the fish plants or processors, who can who they, they can sell to, where oil produced here could be sold, where minerals produced here could be sold? So I think that opens up Pandora's box. What do you think? Well, they, they already well, they, they control it. In other ways, they're not let issue no more processors. They won't allow anyone coming from outside the province to compete with them. So that's the gate to end the competition laws. They don't even compete with themselves. The, blow, the buyers that are in the, the profits there now, all those plans, they don't even compete with one another. You know what I mean? You can't even go, you can't, I can't go tomorrow and, and stop shipping the one company and go to another. You know why they won't answer? So they're not even competing. That's even the gate to end the competition law, which is federal jurisdiction. But they get away with it. Okay. Well, yeah. They've got the same problem as the banks. They've got an oligopoly out. Go, these oligarchs, half a dozen, they'll run the whole fishery. And now the whole, the whole 
industry at Ransom said, they're going to have a day away of that. You know, we're going to shut everything down. Bring it to a standstill. Already that tell me I got the fish for last, so I can make a profit. You mean to tell me that's right? No, I didn't say that. Um, well, no, but that's what they're saying. I just, you know, they say that's what that's what we're left for the alternative. And is the government going to allow this? You didn't get the tribe to do something. Well, what are you going to sit on the hand saying you can do nothing? Well, that's not going to work either. One thing where I think there can be some, I don't know if it's common ground is the right phrase, but, you know, if the harvesters themselves got 40% of the market value last year for the price on crab versus somewhere around 28% this year, that makes a, a terrible situation even more dire. So even if there was some sort of control inside the price setting panel that we accept one price or another, which I think is also deeply flawed, is if that also came with a caveat that inside of this price there will be X percent for the harvesters, very similar to the 40 of last year, and then the rest for the processors who take on an additional layer of risk as well. So maybe that and that is a baby step forward to making it not so contentious every single year because if the processors were, or pardon me, the harvesters were getting 40 percent to the 220 versus or over the market value then maybe this would have been tempered and maybe the boats be on the water maybe all has to be working in the plants yeah well i agree with you the marketing system you know, what they, whatever the formulas are coming up with it's not definitely not working i mean like when little crab price fluctuates so much as what it is that's not helpful to any industry you know that you know we don't most harvesters you know they don't need 760 pounds that's not a realistic place. I mean, we going, you know, you could see that comment wasn't going to stand. But I mean, asking to fish for two twenty, probably drive it down to a dollar fifty. You know, I mean, that's going to put everyone to bankrupt. That's not the answer. I don't you have the water. Right. I don't have an individual quota. I'm not involved in the fishery. But if I'm looking at the Association for Seafood Producers who, who say they're unwilling to go back to negotiate a higher price with harvesters, they wrote a letter on April 28th uh, committing to 220 pounds for 21 days, brings us up to the 18th of May. When I read between those lines, is that if they're, if they're not fishing for crab at 220 between now and the 18th, then at some point, I know it comes with all sorts of caveats regarding uh, trip, uh, trip limits and all that stuff. But it sounds quite likely that 220 will very quickly become a, a lesser price after the 18th of this month if we don't get at it. So, you know, I guarantee you there's individual harvesters out there ready to go and willing to go at 220 and thinking that some is better than none. But anyway, Claude, appreciate the thought, uh, thoughtful commentary you offered off the top. Would you like to say anything else? Well, yes, some uh, <laughs> Yes, I uh, can see some guys are burning on. They want the, the processor want us to go for that. They want to put the squeeze on it because they got, they either owned or own controlling share or a lot of the, the bigger quotas. They, they need times on the, against them. They want to turn the land their quotas. Basically, that's why they're putting a big squeeze on us there, getting everybody to go or whatever. And once we do go, we'll be on our trip limits and all have us tie up the war for three weeks. Well, they can go low and go. That's what they want. That's what they got up their sleeve. That's what they did last year. Well, certainly there's some of this is well calculated, of course. No one's denying that yeah. at all. And I hope everybody in the fishermen, you know, realize that. If the fellas think they're going to go for 22 20 a pound, whatever now, I think it's had to go and make a dollar. And yes, you'll see what you want to be That's it. I appreciate so the time. All downhill from there. I appreciate the time this morning, Claude. Thank you, sir. Very good, everybody. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, Susan Hyde from the Schizophrenia Society, then plenty of time to talk to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM.
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the executive director at the Schizophrenia Society. That's Susan Hyde. Hi, Susan. You're on the air. Yes. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind. Thank you. How about you? Oh, 100%. Thanks. Um, thanks for having me on this morning. I'm just calling to, if folks haven't heard yet, about the family recovery journey that we're doing starting in May, May 16th. Um, I just want to make sure that uh, they know that this program is a valuable resource for family members and friends, neighbors, or people who uh, are living with schizophrenia and psychosis in the province. Um, and I also want to encourage people that if you know someone who's, who's a family member or a friend or employer, it doesn't matter, um, to please, please reach out to them and just let them know that this is available. And, of course, they can just call us at Schizophrenia Society. Um, wanted to give us all a, an idea about how many people in the province actually are living with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. Okay. It's about 5,400 people. Um, it's 20 million worldwide, which is a you know, huge amount. Both are. Um, but the 5,300 is only the people that are actually living with the illness. Um, we have to imagine the folks that are in their lives, their daughters, their brothers, their moms, dads, whatever, are also impacted by the, by the illness. And so this specific program is definitely for family, friends, and we even take Scatter, a professional who's interested in, in getting more information. So it's a, it's a five-week session. It's two hours long. Um, it's free of charge. And right now we're still on the Zoom so that we can reach folks up in Labrador and in rural Newfoundland, Labrador. Um, and uh, so it's an opportunity really for people to, for the first time, actually meet other families or family members or friends who are living uh, with the, situa- the, the, the illness. Uh, and it's amazing to see at first everybody's kind of quiet, and then by the end of the session, uh, people are giving each other support. And, and that's really what the program is about. Yes, it's going to be educational, no question. We, have, we don't call ourselves teachers or instructors. We're guides. We guide people through the, the journey. So there's different topics. Um, probably the most popular one would be managing crises. Uh, dealing with the criminal justice system, if that comes up, um, suicide, uh, uh, substance use. Um, there's also, um, you know, dealing with stress, building building a better support system, and uh, navigating the healthcare system, mental healthcare system. So there's a lot of different topics that are available, and um, but again, the the biggest growth and the biggest, uh, uh, I think, the reward of the program is when families are connecting to each other and they're realizing that, yeah, they they sometimes they even say that they feel that they've been stigmatizing the situation themselves because they don't reach out. They don't feel comfortable saying at the family reunion, you know, Bob's doing good or Jane's doing better or whatever. They, uh, they just, you feel, they feel so much stress around their entire life. It's like a bubble, but it's not a good bubble. Um, I'll tell you, some days I come into the office and give people an idea of what it's like and how, how, how powerful it is to say, I'll get a phone call. And there'll be a family member saying, you know, my daughter has schizophrenia and these five things are happening with her. And they're talking at the speed of sound, uh, very stressed out, very, very emotional. And all I say after listening is I'll say, well, you know what, we, we can help. And then it's just tears. It's just tears, men and women just breaking down, just saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe there's a place that we can go or a person we can talk to um, who understands our plight and, and can give us uh, some, some support. So, so those are, those are the, the main things that we, we do with the program. Um, the other thing, which is also our sort of a natural uh, national um, 
philosophy is that psychosis is treatable and recovery is to be expected. So we believe uh, we can support our families in um, helping their loved one live life to their fullest potential. Maybe that loved one's just at home feeling like they'll never get a job, they'll never have a relationship, they'll never, all these things that kind of go along with the stigma of schizophrenia. And we help the families help them say, you know what, there's, there's money if you want to go back to school. There's support if you want to go to a peer support group. There, you know, it's a, that's, that's a very, very important part of, of what we do. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, yeah, living to their full potential, but definitely also giving them the answers that they need. There's so many people out there that are, especially in rural, that don't have the kind of resources that we have right here in St. John's um, that are really suffering. And um, so we do everything we can to provide them with the kind of support that they need. And this, this program is a big part of our work because we're able to help families help themselves. I'm not going to try to minimize the need for all the layers and uh, levels of support, but sometimes the best starting point that the biggest sigh of relief is when someone simply says, we can help. Yes. It's remarkable because if you dig right into, well, this is this program, this is pot of money, this is this opportunity, then of course it becomes even more mind-boggling as opposed to that little bit of comfort at the beginning of saying, we can help. Okay, great. Right? So it's a nice way to start that conversation. Uh, Susan, give the folks the details, how they can get involved one more time before we run out of time. Certainly. Family Recovery Journey uh, begins on May 16th. That's a Tuesday. we're doing an evening session this time from 6 to 8 p.m. It's uh, This program's going to be on Zoom. It's five sessions, and it's free of charge, of course, and uh, everybody's welcome. So and if you have any questions about whether or not you think it's appropriate for you, please just give me a shout, and I'd be happy to talk to, talk to them about it. So the number is 777-3335, and Patty, you're a treasure. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time, Susan. Good luck. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Susan Hyde is the executive director at the Schizophrenia Society. Let's try to get back on track with the breaks. Jason and Krista, you're both there. We appreciate your patience. Talk the fisheries, mental health, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let us now go to line number four. I think that's the four coming from Fonts. Good morning, Krista. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Um, great show. Uh, I'm a first-time uh, caller. Welcome um, to the program. Until today, thank you. Until today, you know, I truly didn't understand the importance of your show. So I really wanted to thank you for giving us all a voice. We appreciate you making time. What would you like to talk about, Krista? Mental illness and addiction. It's not something that's uh, far from anybody's mind. It's uh, becoming an epidemic. Uh, we just lost our, uh, I just lost my nephew last Friday. He committed suicide. He was struggling with the, the mental illness and addictions for a few years now, Patty. And I guarantee you, a lot, a lot up until this point, he didn't want help. He really did not want help. Two weeks ago, he was caught after the fact and was saved, was transported to a hospital local, and they didn't admit him. 
They let him go. They just upped his medication and sent him on his way. He lasted two days, and he did the same thing again. He practically went in that hospital, bawling his eyes out, telling them to save him. But unfortunately, the resources is just not there, Patty. I know the awareness is there. I mean, we just went through Awareness Week, but the resource is not there. There's too many loopholes for anybody that even thinks they got or may be thinking they have mental illness. There's too many loopholes for them to get help. It takes too long. The process is too long. So, and another issue with it is that drug addictions is becoming to be an issue not only because it's legalized, because it's too, these drugs are too readily available on the streets. I see it every day. You see those individuals who sell those deadly items and they're laughing, they're walking free, they're getting caught, they're getting let out, and nothing is being done. An example got to be sent, it's got to be made. It got to be made because it's becoming an epidemic and there's no help. So let's let's take it one by one, and I'm really deeply sorry for your loss, Krista. I can only imagine Thank what you're you. going through. The issue about presenting yourself with suicidal ideation. So you're saying your son went to, um, just guessing, the Waterford and said, I'm having thoughts of hurting or harming or killing myself? My nephew, Michael James Dalton, nephew, yes, pardon he me. went to a local hospital in Central. Okay. And they simply adjusted medication, and that was that, and he was sent on his way. That was that. That was that. And, I mean, I have medical professionals in our family, and and they have said that that was not procedure. He should have been admitted and not allowed out, but instead they increased his antidepressants and sent him home. And what happened next? So I, I think you said he only lasted two more days. So yes. discharged, comes home, then what? But did he immediately leave the home and went to his own unfortunate uh, dark place? Or was there any more conversation with family and anybody trying to pick up the torch to be his champion? Or what happened next? Okay. So Michael, he was, a, he was an individual who had a smile constantly. He was everyone's best friend. I mean, we just went through the funeral service yesterday. Had the outpour of support and the tears that was cried for this one person was uncomprehendable. He lived a smiling, happy face. He was there for everybody that needed help. He couldn't wait to help you. But deep down, he, he was miserable. He was dying inside. I'm his aunt Dada. I didn't even know he was two at this point. I knew he was dabbling in this and that, but that got into worse things. And then in the last little while, he kept pushing people away. And we were just thinking like he was busy. He was like uh, down in Boise's Bay doing turnarounds. He's a, a mechanic and he had his own service truck and he had a support system everywhere he went. But he hid it so deeply that we did not know the severity of this. And he took his life two days after he was let go from that hospital because he kept telling everybody, I'm okay, I'll, I'm going to self-isolate, 
I'm going to have my girlfriend look out to me. I'll be okay. So, I mean, he was struggling with hitting rock bottom and thinking he could still handle the problem. But the thing is, when he went into that hospital, he should have been admitted. That would have given us 24 hours of him getting professional uh, advice because we are not psychiatrists and we're not uh, mental health doctors. We're parents. Uh, we're aunts and uncles. We're just friends. We don't know. There's trained individuals in our society who's educated, but they're not readily available. This is going. This has been going on for a few years with Michael. We knew that he needed help, but we knew he was also coping. We thought he was. But the loopholes, the long list to get in to see a, a therapist or a psychiatrist, it's it's just taken too long. I'm trying to recall everything you've said thus far. So did you say when he went looking for help most recently in Central that it was the first time he had done that and that people were just simply unaware of the mighty struggles that he was encountering? That is the first time that he hit rock bottom enough to go to a hospital. If you can comprehend that. Well, I, I try to, and it's no. sometimes extremely difficult to try to put myself in others' shoes. Yeah. Uh, I try, so I think it helps in the conversation, but yeah. it's just so horribly sad. And you mentioned yeah. the issue regarding addictions and making it an example of somebody, some drug dealer, whoever. And there's many of them, and people know who they are, the police know who they are. The yeah. only problem with the it making an example of is that the next person to come behind and be the next profiteer under someone else's misery is waiting right there in the wings. So for me, identifying the people who are addicted, getting them the amount of help as uh, in conjunction with the police doing their jobs, uh, that probably gets us a little further ahead as a society because if we can, we can lock them up and throw away keys, but we'll be having to build more uh, prisons because we'll be endlessly locking them up and throwing away keys because they are coming... Hell bent for leather. They're waiting in the wings. So we've got to do both at the same time. Help those who are hurting and deal with the the issue of traffickers that are out there. I mean, it's not just as, as simple as someone living on a street in Tessier no. Place or wherever selling drugs. It's the, the, imp, the infiltration of some of the organized crime units that have really driven us to a very scary, dark place regarding these zombie-creating synthetic drugs. It's wicked stuff out there. It really is. So, like, what can we do to to help curve, to curve this horrifying pattern? Like, Patty, what can we do? Like, by going on open line is one thing. Writing letters to the government, trying to get them to change the health care system is another thing. What, what can you suggest us as a family to do to cope with this, to get through it? Because is literally killing off, is causing off mental issues. So this is like not only my nephew with mental issues, now his parents is dealing with. That was their only child. That was their only child. And they were, they, they, they seen him flourish, like get a good job. He just purchased his new home. He got, he had a beautiful girlfriend. He had a loving family, a big circle of friends, but he was so happy. But inside he was so, he was, so dark and gone, and he hit it. Krista, I don't know how to speak to how you can hope 
through this grief, but I can't put you in touch with people who I've have lived experience and they do this type of support work. One is a yeah. good friend of mine, Tina Davies. She's the founder of Richard's Legacy Foundation for survivors of suicide loss. There's also a survivors of suicide loss uh, support group at Thrive, Choices for Youth. So I can help connect you with Tina in particular, who I think will be a great resource for you and your family if you'd like me to do, to do that. Yes, we actually said that yesterday. To get my sister and my brother-in-law through this, the only way we're going to do it is if we can get a support group that can actually, uh, you know, feel the same feelings they're feeling. Because he was my nephew. He felt uh, he was like my son. I can guarantee you because we got a small family. But my sister and my brother-in-law, they are going to need all the support. And, yes, that is a good place to start. So I will take any information you have to give us. I'm trying to see if I can find some sort of contact number for Tina and Richard's Legacy Foundation because that's what I would suggest and recommend. What I can do is I'll give you an email address, and you'll yes. send Tina a note, and I'm sure you'll hear back from her very quickly, okay? Okay, thank you. So the email address is TG. Yes. D-A-V-I-E-S, Davies, T-G-D-A-V-I-E-S. Yep. 99. Yes. At gmail.com. Okay, see this? I'm going to tell you, Patty, like, just that. That's something I didn't know before I called you. So, like, your show is so important. I thank you for it. Well, uh, hopefully this could be of some help for your loved ones to get through this. Uh, I think this group has been very positive for many people yeah. who have joined and go to the annual vigils, what have you. But please do reach out to Tina. And when you do, let me know how you make out. I will. I'll call back. I won't be your first caller. You'll hear more from me. I appreciate your time. I wish you well. My condolences. Thank you very much. Thanks, Christine. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, Jason, you hang on there. You're next uh, after this break while I catch your breath. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Jason, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Or good afternoon, is it now? Yeah, still morning here for me, but I'm doing fine. How about you? Good, Bob. Doing good. I just uh, want to comment real quick on your last caller. My condolences to their family. I know that mental health is, uh, is a big issue here on Dolan. It sure is, and I join you in offering condolences. So, Patty, I just wanted to give you a quick shout today. I'm trying to understand this crisis with the crab fishery. Um, I'm looking at it in a perspective that the fishermen this year are getting 220 a pound. Um, it's a bit low, but if you take into consideration their last two years prior to this, they're averaging about, if you average the three years together, they'd be averaging around uh, $5 a pound. Like, I can't really understand the crisis with the money that's been made the last two years. Why is such a huge crisis on the crab fishermen this year? Well, I think it's like many industries. Uh, when times are good, you know, do people have the foresight to look down the road and think or consider that maybe next year might not be as good? But it doesn't feel like that, does it? Because the sticker shock between 760 a pound and 220 is obviously very real. It's a volatile market. But when you get used to the good times, it's hard to accept or understand the bad times. So I, I, get, well, your, I get your question, but it's, you know, maybe, maybe it's as simple as that. 
you know, I guess they can also offer the criticism that they think the price is too low, period. The price-setting panel kind of said as much out loud. They said this is probably not the right price, but their hands are tied. They pick either the union price or the association of seafood producer price, and that's that, which doesn't really make any sense either. But, yeah, it's a fair question that you're asking, though. I get it. Yeah, for sure. And, like, I think if it was this time next year, uh, there would be a bit more mercy for the, say, the fisher, fisher especially the offshore and the enterprise owners. I mean, I know some of these fishermen personally, and I know some of their crew members last year, just a crew member on some of these uh, crab boats, and, and they might do some other fisheries too, but making upwards of 200K in six months and then get unemployment for the rest of the year. You know what I mean? So, I mean, one shortfall, one year, it's, it's hard to expect everyone to react in a crisis for you when you're made that kind of money in the last two years. Yeah, I mean, I know guys with uh, uh, crab licenses who have done very well, to say the very least, in the last number yeah. of years. You know, it's only about five years ago that the stock itself was in crisis. Now we've seen a bit of a rebound, or so says the science, and we've seen an increase on the uh, total allowable catch of 8.4% this year, but it doesn't jibe with the price being offered. You know, I'm, and I'm still a little bit confused yeah. about, like, if we're talking about the market, because... People can want what they want, whether it be harvesters or processors. But if the market, when the crab fishery opened this year, it was about 575 US. Now it's down to yeah. 475 US. And the look that I hear from people who are market watchers is that they expect the market to soften even further. So when people talk about fairness, fairness also has to be talked about in the light of what the market can actually bear. I mean, period. That might yeah. not be something that people want to hear, but ultimately the market yeah. decides. In our society, in our economic structure, the market will make the vast majority of decisions, and I think the market has spoken this year. Yes, for sure, I agree. And, and like, to me, the only crisis to me this year would be, like, uh, the uh, the workers, say, in the plants and the truckers. I mean, these people, these people are not making big money, Patty. And with the interest growing up and the price of food going up, these people can't just sit around and... and like some of these fishermen that made 100, 200K last year in six months, they, they don't have the luxury of sitting on money they made last year. No. I mean, some of that might have been reinvested in their enterprise. Some of that they might just have spent on whatever it is they want in this world. You know, it's their money. They can do as they see fit. I just think that we've yeah. really set ourselves up, you know, on a variety of fronts in the industry. Is you can talk about the volatility in the mining sector and the price, whether it be for ore or other minerals. You can talk about the volatility in the oil business and how the government, you know, tries to use an annual forecast for an average price per barrel in American dollars to, to set a budget. And we never know because no one has a crystal ball. Same thing in the fishery. Yeah. The good times can be very quickly followed by not so great times like we've seen in, in crab from last year to this year. It's just pretty plain. And, and yeah, and who knows, like, maybe they could come up with something with their union with FFAW. Uh, depending on how much trust they have in their union hall, where if if it's a viable price to fit a fish at three twenty, and next year it goes to I don't know seven bucks again, maybe they can put in a slush fund for for years that the market price is down. Maybe. I mean, I guess that sounds I mean, a lot like paying into a pension type of setup, even though, of course, I know the, the difference and the distinction you're making there. Is that something yeah. they'd be willing to do? I really don't know. It's not for me to say because it's not my money. But anything no. to prepare for a rainy day. I mean, everyone has to do it as individuals and as families. We have to prepare for a rainy day. The government, even you know, with the establishment of the Future Fund, is looking at rainy day prep, even though we're talking about 
pretty paltry sums of money when we compare it to our net debt and overall annual spending and what have you. But I suppose that might be something that is considered inside the industry. I'm a little bit surprised that we don't see more in the form of co-ops, to be honest, because the co-op would yeah. indeed probably be governed by some of those approaches, by setting aside some money from very lucrative seasons. You know, we've got one in yeah. Labrador, the Labrador Shrimp Company. The Fogo Island Co-op seems to work famously well. I'm a little bit surprised there's not more of that approach being taken because all hands working together, and I know it's a competitive fishery, and it's still competitive inside yeah. the uh, co-ops, but they all have the same intended outcomes and goals. I just really have long been surprised that they're not peppered in more parts of the province. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, with the price, it's easy to see. There's lots of, there's lots of fishermen I know often are they're ready to go whenever for two twenty a pound just because they did have two lucrative years, and they don't see this year as being the end of the fishery or the or the end of a you know of a great era of fishing could be possibly just a bad year, just like last year was a great year. Nobody's got the crystal ball, and you know maybe there was some people who were actually were quite intuitive, talking about it and saying whether it was the amount of money we weren't spending on traveling, the amount of money we weren't spending on our own entertainment budgets because of some of the pandemic-related uh, measures or restrictions that were put in place. Consequently, some of the luxuries of this life, most especially in the world of food, people were taking them on. You know, folks who yeah. maybe it would have been once a year to have that sweet taste of crab, maybe all of a sudden, regardless of the price, because they had some money uh, kicking around because they weren't doing a variety of other things, most notably travel, that's yeah. some of the argument being made on the white tablecloth market in the United States. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and, that's, uh, and to me, that's, that's, an obvious, that's an obvious point there. Like, yeah, people, are not, people don't have the money anymore to spend on luxuries like that. People are getting out of it more like, since COVID has gone there. We're getting back to a normal life and realizing, like, wow, everything's, you know, really expensive. But just my main point in saying is, uh, with the fishery this year, like, I'm all about the fishery. The fishery's in my family, and, and i got lots of friends. But, like, uh, if the fishermen are seeing a bit of uh, lack of uh, mercy or lack of compassion this year with the public not being under, and I'm not saying on the side, but, like, not being super supportive, it's, it's probably because the last two years were so lucrative. You know, this... This this one bad year right now, everyone's not looking at that like it's the end of the picture. It's not the end. Uh, some of the comments that are being made, I'm not so sure they'd be representative of me if I was an enterprise owner, but the thought that folks would rather go bankrupt than the fish for 220, that's a pretty, pretty outstanding yeah. thing to say when... They'd, I guess they know it in their quiet moments that it's not true. There's so many that yeah. are absolutely 100% willing to go at it right now. But solidarity, yeah. I suppose, has been long a feature of the organized labor movement, which I guess we include the FFAW in. But, yeah, it's – I don't know. I think the fishery is – we're very close to being lost for this year in full. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway. Sure. And and I feel bad, too. Like, Patty, like 75% of these enterprise owners, a lot of that stuff is family-owned and, and handed down to families. I mean, you know, 75% of these enterprises are not going to go bankrupt for time off for one year. It's just, that's not going to happen. But no doubt there is some new people getting in, buy, buying licenses, buying boats, that are paying extreme amounts of interest on those loans and different things like that. I, you know, I feel bad for that, the small minority there. And some of the inshore fishermen that got small licenses. Yeah. Tricky piece of business, Jason. I'm glad you made time for the show. Would you like to say anything else? Uh, no, I'm good there, Patty. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Take care. Uh, will I not take anything here, Fonts, and squeeze them up against the news? So appreciate the uh, patience of those in the queue. I want to give you your 
require time, not a short shrift, as we are approaching the newscast very quickly. This f coming from someone who actually is in the industry. He says he's right there. Lots of money to be made over the last few years. But tell him to reach out to some of the shipyards, small businesses, and ask how much money was spent in the last few years. Of course. Now, I think sometimes we also exaggerate how some of the money gets simply recycled inside our own provincial economy. Because I know full well, just like many of you, if you were, say, apt to do a little bit of travel over the years and did none for a few years, look no further than the, the rebound in the airline industry and the cruise industry and otherwise. So some of the money may indeed be spent right here because they've got their suppliers that they deal with and the local shops and restaurants and pubs and all the rest of it, no doubt about it. But that still is zero justification for how we approach one season to another. Every time people make money, because we are the economy, because it's not the government. When I make money, I spend money. When you make money, you spend money. Some of that will be locally, some will be provincially, some will be nationally, some of it will be internationally. But that's really not an argument for how it pertains to this particular season. This is very much the epitome of a snapshot in time. You can talk about last year's price all you like. How that factors into this year's market reality, they're really two distinctly different issues. I know we'll try to make that argument, and making making money and uh, preparing for rainy day, that's up to individuals. I mean, whether there be a formal creation of a slush fund or a protective fund or a rainy day fund or a future fund, that would be up to, I suppose, individual enterprise owners, their willingness to contribute to that. It'd all be earmarked what you'll put in. It'd be money you get out. I suppose you could find some risk-free or has a low-risk investment opportunity to see minimal returns. But anyway, last year's price was last year's price. This year's price? Is this year's price? Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Hi, um, <clears throat> I am calling because of an incident that happened with my seven-year-old son at school uh, two days ago. Um, he's, he has autism. He is nonverbal. And uh, so, you know, there has been many incidents that's happened leading up to this incident, but this definitely was the worst one. Um, there, his father was on his way over there to, to assist the, the teachers, but I don't think they, they knew when he was going to be there. Um, when he did arrive, the principal brought him up to where our son was to the second floor. And as he walked in, he seen, uh, the, the school psychiatrist with my son in a restraining technique um, with his arm straight up in the air so he couldn't move and walking very fast down the hallway. Now, he stopped the teacher from doing that, and he, he told her to give his son to him. And uh, so then they, the principal guided them to another room um, where my where the where the father looked into a closet with the door and the principal looked at him he said that's not what it looks like because it was a room where they put the children when they get to a certain uh, degree of frustration and that's where they they hold the children because I've been over there a few times and that's where I had to to get my son that's where he was um 
And, you know, it's been a few days. Um, I did go back up there that day and remove my other child from that school um, out of frustration from the incidents before. And, uh, I mean, I've been waiting now for two days. I haven't gotten any phone calls. I've reached out to the MHA, who gave me a number for uh, the school board. You know, I, the only people that have reached out to is the Autism Society. And, uh, you know, they walked us through, you know, a few more people that we could talk to. But it's so hard to get a hold of anyone. Like, no one's calling me back. And I feel like, you know, what she did was wrong. And I have a feeling that, you know, nothing is going to be done about this because, you know, any other time that we've had issues with the school, um, for an example, I went up there a couple of weeks ago and my son was laying in front of the school bus and they had the entire uh, school on hold. You know, all the parents were there in their cars waiting for their kids. You know, the kids were waiting in the schools, waiting to come out to get on the buses. And there was four teachers standing over my son. And no one would lift him off the ground and put him on the bus. They called me to come over and pick him up off the ground. And I, like, my other son, my five-year-old son, was standing there crying because he's on the spectrum as well, and he didn't know what was going on. And it just interrupted the entire day. And then, like, I, I wrote the teacher an email. I'm like, why couldn't you pick him up? And they said they couldn't pick him up because if they had to pick them up, it would have been a liability if, if he had to fall or if one of the teachers had to hurt themselves. Um, my son is only small. He only weighs 60 pounds. He's like, I can still lift him um, and, you know, tickle him and pick him up and stuff like that. Um, and then another incident that happened a while ago, I went, I got called to the school and my son was completely naked, sitting, <clears throat> sitting on a bench, like a wooden bench with no clothes on whatsoever, like not even a pair of socks. And there was two teachers just standing there staring at him. And, like, I couldn't believe that they just, they knew I was coming and they left him there like that. Like, they didn't even wrap him up or put a blanket over him or try and dress him or cover him in any way. Um, and I just, you know, I got there right away and I dressed him. There was no issues. I just you know, dressed him and he was fine. And, you know, and then the next day I brought up a blanket. I'm like, the next time this happens, please cover my son. And Absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah, it yeah. seems to me they're watching it both ways. So if they're unwilling to pick him up while he lay in front of a school bus, unwilling to cover him with a blanket as he sat naked on a wooden bench, but at this, the exact same time, we're willing to put him in a physical restraint, as you uh, yeah. described earlier, seems to me that they're picking their spots. And I spoke to her that day. I sat down. My anger, like, inside of me, I was so furious. I just wanted to jump up at her. You know what I mean? But I didn't. I, I know better than that. But that's how I felt inside. Like, how dare you touch my son like that? And I asked her, I said, how come you can't pick my son up off a street, off the pavement, in front of a school bus, but you can restrain him like that? And she said, I wouldn't call that a restraint. She said, like, I would call it a technique that she's been training for for 20 years. 
And I said, you know, before I left, I said, I would prefer if you don't touch my son like that, if you have issues that he needs to be, you know, calmed down or someone has to intervene like that, I'm like, you should call me. I'm around the corner. They call me three to four times a week, and I'm there within a couple of minutes. Uh, You know what he said to me? He said, I'll need you to write that down on paper and submit it to the school. And then when I walked out of there, I was just, like, I was shaking. I didn't know what to do. All I could think was my son. He can't yell out for help. He can't say, someone call my mom. Or you're hurting me. Like, he, he can't say none of that. If he was in danger, he wouldn't even know that, you know, just to yell out for help. And I don't think, and I think they know that. And I just don't understand why they would do that. You know, like, why would they grab him knowing that he can't defend himself? I'm after hearing a few stories over that school saying, oh, you can't touch the kids because they say you can't touch me, you know, and that they know better than to put themselves in a position like that. And I think the reason why this all happened was because they didn't know when I was going to be there because I sent the father over instead. And they didn't, they're not really familiar with him and they don't know what his car looks like or anything like that. And I think that he just walked in on it happening. And I like I should have asked her, like, how many more times are you after doing this to my son? Like, Can I ask what the teacher said was the justification? Not that I'm giving them any justification for doing that to your son. Was, like, are they saying that he was yes, unruly or going after another child? Or what was the situation? No, they said that he was kicking and, and lunging after the teachers because he was in a certain room and he didn't oh no a teacher was trying to remove him from the room and he bit her and so that teacher left and they were and as the teacher came back in to remove him from the room he started to go after the teachers like lunging after them and kicking them and 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 you know being aggressive towards the teachers and i know this is a difficult question to hear what do you think should happen in those circumstances? How do you th- suggest they should handle that? I think that they should, you know, leave the room. You know, all of the doors have windows. Make sh- Like, these rooms are equipped for these children. There's nothing in the rooms that could hurt the children. They're all in sensory rooms. And I think that they should call to like they do every other time. They always call me. They call me when he's on the climbing frame and they can't get him down. They call me when he knocked over the hula hoops in the gym and he starts throwing them across the floor. They call me when he's laying on the ground. They call me when he's throwing rocks. Every And they wait for me to go there and I help them. I assist them. I'm there. You know, I, I do the picking up. I do the, you know, all that, that stuff that needs to be done. And I think I don't understand why she took it in her hands to do that to him instead of waiting for me to get there or his father. She just decided to do it herself. And after all the meetings that we've had, after all the conversations, emails, you know, ISSP meetings, you know, all these group sessions, like none of that was ever mentioned. Miss Grant, if your son ever gets like this, there is a technique that we do that we restrain him and we lead him down to a room and we put him in the closet until you get there. They ne- they've never once told me that. Does your child have a student assistant? Yes, he does. And where was that person at this time? She, uh, there was a student assistant there, and they said that he bit her. 
his regular student assistant was not there that day, two days ago. Well, obviously, I'm sorry to hear that this happened. And, you know, that's where I think, if I hear your points correctly, is that there has to be the opportunity for the administration, the student assistant, the teacher, to sit down with you and your husband and to talk about the different scenarios and what can or should happen when they present themselves, all the way from throwing rocks to being naked to be kicking at a teacher or biting or lunging or whatever the case would be so that you know what to expect. They know how you're going to react. They know that they can turn to you with a, uh, a telephone call to either you or your husband so that it can be addressed and hopefully resolved quickly. Until everyone is on the same page, you're going to have these issues uh, pop up, which are they're absolutely avoidable. So We've been having meetings sorry. since kindergarten. We've been having ISSPs with the doctor, the pediatrician, the occupational therapist, all the teachers involved, his teacher, the principal, the father. We've been doing this for three years. And the meetings are the same meetings, the same issues, the same, uh, you know, resources, the same, oh, this is what we're going to do about it. But nothing has changed. Nothing. I'm sorry that it happened, and I really do appreciate your time, and hopefully there's an opportunity in the very near future for all aforementioned people to sit across from each other and come up with a plan that works, ultimately for your child. Yes. Yes. I appreciate this this morning. Be well. Thank you. You too. Bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Newfoundland and Labrador Gold Rush. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Prospectors Association. That's Norm Mercer. Good morning, Norm. You're on the air. Oh, hello, uh, Patty. Uh, good morning. What a time to be in the mining industry. Yes, Patty. Uh, just just before I uh, just before I, I, I make some comments on that, I, I listened very uh, very closely to the lady who was speaking on your uh, past call, because uh, you know, as an individual, as a father, as far as a family, uh, I can certainly understand and appreciate uh, a lot of her frustrations and concerns. My oldest, uh, my oldest child, my son Stephen, who's now forty three and doing very very well in an independent apartment with home care support here in our two-apartment home. But uh, I just wanted to mention that, uh, you know, certainly as young parents, we reached out a number of times to the Department of Health, uh, Youth Services and uh, Child Matters uh, to, to, to secure the services of a behavior management specialist. So I don't know if, if, they, uh, if they've interacted there, but I certainly would say you know, with regards to some of these behaviors, and over a period of time, they can uh, use strategies to reduce those significantly. But I just wanted to suggest that they certainly check out, you know, the the the, the need for a behavior management specialist there. Yeah, and I probably should have broached that with them, Norm. My thoughts are, though, inside the uh, school district, or I guess now the department, and uh, the Autism Society, that's one of the go-to initial measures that are taken. So I'm just hoping that that has happened, because if you're in school for X number of years and that has not been an exercise that's been undertaken, then they've certainly obviously missed something, though. But that's a good point, Norm. Maybe I'll reach back out to her and ask that question, or at least plant that seed. 
Yes, I just wanted to uh, to comment on that because it's uh, all of that is so close to my heart. So I just hope I can uh, continue and do this interview now uh, properly and uh, talk about uh, a very positive happening in the province uh, related to the modern-day gold rush that's happening, particularly here on the island. Well, let's just get uh, start with a wrap-up of the most recent mining conference. Then we'll move on to some of the issues, especially inside of gold. Yes, yeah, like I say, in terms of, uh, and I got to take my hat off, and certainly that of our members, to the uh, Gander and Area Chamber of Commerce, to the town of Gander for partnering, uh, to the uh, coordinator or man- manager of the event, Amanda McCollum, and the event coordinator also, Jessica Keats, the team that they had there to bring together uh, the first Central Minex Mineral Industry Showcase at the Steel Community Center la- late last week. It was a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful event. It was really well attended with some 400-plus uh, registrants over uh, 70 exhibitors, along with a number of prospector exhibits. Also, a lot of public outreach and educational activities for several hundred school children who came from schools from as far away as Buckins to, uh, to the event and did uh, mineral challenges and had opportunities to learn all aspects of the industry from the very first mapping and research and picking out targets to prospecting, discovery, mineral development, mining, and reclamation. It was a tremendous event, and hats off to the Gander and Area Chamber of Commerce and the town as they're seeing truly the impact of, uh, of the significant gold discovery and gold activity uh, in their region. Let's talk about gold specifically. I know that the provincial government put some money forward for junior mining companies, not necessarily for gold, but for other critical minerals and what have you. But this is an interesting piece of uh, information that's come out very recently. It came from Newfound Gold Corp. Based on the Fraser Institute, and people recognize that think tank, they have determined or examined 30, or pardon me, 62 jurisdictions worldwide and say that Newfoundland and Labrador has been ranked the fourth most attractive jurisdiction in the world in terms of mining investment, which is really a mouthful. Yes, it is. That, I mean, it's amazing in terms of over the years, and I know in terms of... Uh, presentations that we've made, others have made, Mining Industry and Ill, and partnering and working with the provincial government. But moving forward, both in terms of the new mineral strategy that the government released a few years ago, and then in terms of looking at making Newfoundland and Labrador one of the most uh, attractive investment-wise and competitive jurisdictions, well-regulated and permitted, but one of the most attractive jurisdictions. When I read that earlier today, and to see that we're up there now uh, just behind Saskatchewan, when we see Nevada, when we see Western Australia. In fact, I was talking to one young geologist who works with Matador Mining, an Australian-based company that are working on the uh, Cape Ray gold deposits over in southwest Newfoundland. Uh, he, would, he, he just marvels in terms of at the, uh, at the people, at the skill sets here, at the government response in terms of offering incentive grants, rebate programs, prospector grants. Eric Sprott himself uh, lauded it in terms of that, you know, government actually will rebate some funds to many of these companies because it is, it is high risk. There is tremendous reward, but it's only one in a thousand at best projects that will move on from discovery to an economic, uh, economic mine. 
let's talk about the scope and the scale of some of the discoveries, whether it be Queensway, Hammerdown, Marathon, Rambler, the things they're sitting on, those that are in production. Give us a, an example of the size when compared to not only other gold finds around the world, but in Canada in particular. I think Marathon is sitting on one that's ex especially expensive. Uh, Marathon Gold, I mean, as over the last 10 to 12 years, uh, through their exploration and drilling efforts, I mean, they've identified over 5 million ounces of gold that they can put into reserve categories at, at various levels, and also with a lot of upside potential all along the structures and shear zones that they have at the Valentine Project southwest of Buckins. At the present time, they're into uh, to, uh, construction, uh, with the uh, plan to be ready to start producing in 2025. I think there's something like 400 to 500 individuals, contractors, employees, numerous companies that are active uh, with Marathon and certainly, uh, you know, communities in that area, Grand Falls, Windsor, Millertown, Buckins, Buckins Junction, Badger, all of that area is certainly seeing the impact of all of that activity. And that, and that mine, when, it, uh, when it's up and running in 2025, will be producing close to 200,000 ounces uh, of gold per year in the first 12 to 15 years. And then wow. other, other potential deposits. It's the largest, uh, it's the largest gold mine uh, coming together under construction in all of eastern Canada. And it would certainly rank up there right across Canada as in the mid-tier of, uh, of producing uh, gold mines. So gold per ounce, somewhere in the 2700s? Uh, this morning, I think it was around uh, 2015 or $16 U.S., so when you do the math on that and with the exchange rate and as far as Canadian, yeah, you're anywhere, like, and, uh, as you mentioned earlier, with some of the commodities, whether it's crab, whether it's iron ore, whether it's copper, a range of different things, no matter what the commodity might be, there is quite a lot of volatility in some of these markets, but when we look at, uh, when we look at many of the critical minerals, and when we look at the uh, amount that's stored in some of these wholesale uh, metals storage facilities, like I've never seen some of the uh, levels so low in terms of the demand that will be there going forward across the world for many of these critical minerals like copper and nickel and lithium and so on. But uh, commenting on other, other uh, gold projects, we have, uh, we have uh, five projects in this province uh, and on the island that uh, that have somewhere in the neighborhood of close to a million ounces or more of uh, of defined uh, gold uh, gold ounces defined. Uh, Cape Ray is close to a million ounces with Matador Maritime Resources up near Springdale near Kings Point with the Hammerdown and Orion deposits. Within a couple of years, they could be into production with uh, with the early phase on the Hammerdown and then ramping up into the Orion deposit, so close to a million ounces there. The company that's been drilling the last several years down at Hope Brook, and of course Hope Brook deposit was discovered in 1983 by P.P. Selco, and they outlined at that time close to two million ounces at a cutoff grade of two grams. They mined about 850 to 900,000 ounces at the time, two different companies, P.P. Selco and then Royal Oak Mines, but the company there now, High Tide Resources, has defined well over a million ounces of gold. These systems, these mineralized systems, these gold settings, you know, they can be pretty extensive. And uh, so then, and then when you look at Marathon uh, and Maritime, Matador, 
Then when we look at uh, Newfound Gold and the Queensway, uh, Queensway North Project, with some of the best drill hole intersections the world has seen in a number of decades, and Canada too, uh, they haven't come out with a, a resource uh, estimate at the time because they're still discovering new veins and breaches and zones, but certainly uh, they, they are onto a very significant gold resource. Eric Sprott, the international silver and gold uh, investor, has betted heavily on this project. He, uh, he agreed right away to come and uh, speak at this, uh, at this uh, Central Minex uh, Mineral Industry Showcase. The room was full when he spoke at the, uh, at the conference, probably about 300 people there, and he gave the big macroeconomic picture, but also he talked about how he truly believes, like the price of gold, and yes, it'll have its weekly and monthly ups and downs, but he believes the trend is gold is going higher. So when you talk $2,600, $2,700 Canadian, there's uh, the, something like Queensway, where you're talking bonanza-grade gold, some drill intersections in the multiple ounces, you know, these could be very profitable uh, zones of mineralization. And then there are others, uh, Sockerman Minerals, they've got a, a gold deposit that they've been drilling on the last couple of years. Eric Sprout is involved in that one too. That's just south of Bishop's Falls and just uh, west of the Beta Spare Highway. And uh, they also are reporting Bonanza grade intercepts there. And awesome. then, there's a, then there's dozens of other junior companies who stake all up and down the Appleton Fault and other subsidiary faults and other areas over along the Cape Ray and the Valentine Shear Zone. So it's it's a lot of activity. That just sounds like it, Norm. And, of course, all the rage is nickel, lithium, cobalt, uranium, and what have you. But are the precious metals, gold, how to say this, it has seen an amazing resurgence in price and the appetite for investors to use gold to hedge their risks, to diversify their portfolios. So it's always going to be volatile and speculative, but gold is, uh, still has a major place in this world. It's not that long ago. International currencies were measured against gold versus the American greenback, but sounds like we've got a, a very bright gold future. I have to get to the news, but next time we talk, let's go back to the critical minerals because there's also a massive opportunity for this province and for these local companies to get involved in that because we can be part of the global supply chain. We don't have to simply be producers. We can be a big part. Good to have you on, Norm. Appreciate the info. Yes, and we've discovered lithium, too, there on yeah. the southwest coast, so we can talk about that. We're rolling out workshops right now, and we've done four. We've had over 100 people that have expressed interest, and many of them have come out to these workshops. We've got two more coming up now in Marystown later this month and over at the Bayvert Mining Show in early uh, June. Then it's off to Labrador. So we'll certainly talk again on that, sir. Stay in touch, Norm. Thanks a lot. Yes, all the best to you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Norm Mercer is the president of the NL Prospectors Association. Let's take a break for the newscast. We'll be back. Plenty of time for you. Oh, Otham's there. What a great one. Schooners in Newfoundland. Excellent. Talk away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Otham. You're on the air. Uh, hello there, Patty. How you doing? I'm excellent. Uh, thanks. Is, did I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah, Otham. Otham. Welcome to the show. Oh, right on. Um, I was thinking there, I listen to your show all the time, and that, and there's a lot of stuff there about mental health and, and problems with the school system and all this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. 
over in Europe, I mean, they have a lot of programs for like uh, for this sort of thing and, and teaching young kids and people that have, you know, social problems and all that kind of thing. I mean, they, I think it was in um, in uh, Holland or in the Netherlands there, they built a great big boat and all that kind of thing. And it was a big student thing and, and that kind of thing. I mean, why doesn't the government put some money towards? I mean, that was this is the whole problem now is that they haven't put money in the education system uh, for a long time except uh, white-walled rooms. So, I mean, they should be putting more money into um, preventing the problem instead of just trying to solve the problem by shuffling people in white-walled rooms. And I think a, a schooner program of some sort, like building schooners, I mean, our forefathers built schooners with hand tools in a in a winter i mean uh, with the modern tools now you could build it in a in a month all the fishermen could get together and have a protest on the on the confederation building and just build a boat in a month uh, it's okay. uh, i i just don't understand why they didn't put money into i mean like uh, outdoor education um uh, down in New Zealand, there's a program uh, just north of Queensland, uh, a place called Wanaka. It's a high school program. Anybody in in the country can apply to go to this program, and it's all outdoor pursuits. It's not it's not a set program, set time schedule. You have to pass national exams in order to um, uh, graduate high school, of course. But it's not a set schedule. They got to revolve around the weather. I mean, we live in a in a Arctic climate. We don't live in uh, in in Florida, so we we uh, this is where we they didn't put money in the right places years ago. And so there are there are outdoors we're related. We're having okay. mental problems now because uh, we were Arctic explorers up until uh, we joined Canada. We never had roads. And now all of a sudden we're roads and you're, it's like they're trying to put a square into a, skirt, a circle in the system, right? And it, and it causes problems. But there's lots of good things. Like why hasn't uh, some wealthy person or the government um, came up with uh, building schooners for one thing, right? Why, like, why the focus? Hold on a second. Why the focus on schooners? Where are you going with that? Well, we don't even have any that represents Newfoundland. Uh, we controlled uh, uh, Newfoundland had schooners for 400 years, and we don't even have one to represent us. Okay, so schooners for a long well, time boat were boat building, boat building, like boat building for mental health. There's all kinds of things. The system is 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 different or something, and and it's kind of funny, like with the fishery. Uh, the problems in the fishery, and it's the inauguration uh, is happening tomorrow, right? I mean, the inauguration, if it wasn't for the fishery, he wouldn't even have inauguration 400 years ago. What are we talking about now? Are you talking about King Charles? Yeah, of course. Oh, coronation, okay. Um, yeah, but it's just ironic, I think, that it's happening at the same time. The fishery, and the. but anyway, I, I don't know if it's a coincidence or or whatever, but... That's all I want to throw. I just, I just like to see some more help, helping people instead of just throwing money at things that don't actually do anything. There's lots of outdoors-related programs supported by the government. There is a wooden boat museum. They don't build schooners; more the punts and the Rodneys and what have you. Oh, so I know that. I know, I know, I know the program and stuff. But uh, the, it'd be nice to see a schooner sailing around the world that has a Newfoundland sign on it. That's all I mean. Are you, know? you are you familiar with Bob Halliday?
No, I'm not, actually. Bob Halliday was a high school teacher, long retired, and he's built some absolutely beautiful scale replicas. But your mm-hmm. thought of building a schooner seaworthy is interesting. I mean, it was the backbone of the economy for the longest while here in this uh, province, not just about the fishery either. It was actually part of the economy. So how do you differentiate between a clipper ship and a schooner, for instance? So as far as I know... <laughs> but what? Or a barking Okay, fair enough. So it's two more masts, triangular sails, right? That's yeah. basically the, the basic definition of a schooner versus yeah. clipper ships, which is a different uh, different issue altogether. The schooners were popular, not only because they were workhorses, but the maneuverability of a schooner was vastly different mm. as well. So, look, it played a role in coastal life here in this province for centuries, as you rightfully per- point out. And even if its prime focus was to catch fish, it had multiple uh, multiple uses uh, so, inter- interesting thought. I don't know who would get behind the schooner building program. I don't know if Jerome and the crowd at the Wooden Boat Museum had that capacity inside of their relatively small operation. But, yeah, I mean, more focus on the outdoors is obviously good for a variety of things, especially when we're talking about mental health as extensively as we do. We know the absolute upside to outdoors, fresh air, and outdoor activities. So, fair enough. All right. No, that's all I wanted to say. Bye. I love your show. Take care. You too. Thanks a lot, man. Okay, bye. Take care. Thank you, Otham. Schooners of Newfoundland. Yeah, I don't know where it is. It just popped my head about Bob Holiday, but those replicas, the scale replicas he built, were just extraordinary. I don't know if Bob's still around. So if anyone listening to the program is familiar with Mr. Halliday, and just let me know if he's around and doing well, and if you'd like to come on the show and talk about the work he's done preserving the story of schooners and some of those scale replicas, I think that'll be fun. All right, final break of the morning and the week. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Uh, line number one. Rita, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Petty. Morning. And the first thing I have to say is, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm good. And thank you so much for taking my call. Happy to do that. Okay, Petty. I'd like to say that in these challenging times of ours, there's an awful lot to be thankful for. There's still an awful lot to be thankful for. Uh, I want to give a big old shout out to the management and staff of the Valley Vista Nursing Home in Springdale. Our dad, 99 years old, he took up residence there a little while ago. Okay? Mm-hmm. The caregivers at this home they are absolutely outstanding. Already, they all call him Pop. Okay, great. Their tender care is so appreciated by all my siblings and myself. This staff, they're always ready to assist my dad and do everything they can to make him feel at home, comfortable and happy. The other day I went to visit him, and he was so excited to tell me, Rita, I was out to the church service today. Come on, he said, take my hand. Let's go out again. Because my dad is always committed to his church. And by the way, they have their church every Sunday there. Mm 
amongst other things, activities they have for their residents. We never ever thought that Dad would adapt to any other place besides his own home. Every time I go there, he's always full of smiles, laughter, always clean and comfortable and very happy. When he was transferred from the hospital to this home, he was a mechanical lift patient. And now he is not. How did that happen? Well, he was he was admitted admitted to a hospital uh, because he you know he's stable he's old and he, he he was a bit sick. So when the doctor you know recommended him, like he's an, he's a non medical patient anymore he's you know of course taken up beds for sick people. So you know they said well we're going to put him in long term care. So of course that's where they put him in Springdale. Meanwhile, his home was in Gamble. And we were, like, all very disappointed because, my God, Dad's going to be in Springdale now. How are we going to get there to see him often? But anyway, that was, that's a small thing to worry about now because all that staff out there, they respect and love our dad so much. We all go in. We ask him, how are you doing today, Dad? He'll always say, oh, I'm number one. And we, I'll tell you this. And I'll tell you all this out there at that nursing home. We're all so grateful to you wonderful group of guardian angels to let you all know out there in the Valley Vista that you do not go unnoticed. You do what you do because you all love to do it. We are so sure of it. You are all so special to us. God bless you all. Well, I'm really glad that's the experience that your pop is having, your dad, who's now affectionately known as Pop in the home. And I'm glad he's adjusting, even though he thought he couldn't. So this is great news for you. I really appreciate the time. Well, like I said, we're all happy now. We're happy this happened, even though we were all so intimidated by it. But we're all so happy and relieved because these are very important 99-year-old father. Thank you, Rita. I'm glad to hear this. And thank you very much, Patty, for giving me this opportunity because those those beautiful people out there, they really, really deserve this. And I'm sure they appreciate it. You have yourself a nice weekend. Say hello to your dad for me. I will indeed. And thank you so much again, Patty. And you have a nice weekend. Thank you. Appreciate that. Take care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number three. Heather, you're on the air. Hi, um, my name is Heather White and I'm calling in from Change Island. Okay. Uh, I'm calling in regarding, I just had a little rebuttal to someone that called a little earlier this morning regarding the fishery. Um, and he was making the comment such as suggesting that um, crew members making $200,000 per year. Well, I mean, maybe some enterprise owners, no crew member is making that money, yep. Exactly. And suggesting that um, some enterprise owners have made that kind of money. Um, I'm sure that probably there is a, there are some that have made that kind of cash, but that that is a very small minority of fishers that are making that. I mean, I'm from St. Island. My husband is a fisherman. 
for the most part, people here on Change Island, um, they they are inshore fishers, and inshore fish uh, crab quota last year was uh, 8,300 pounds. That do not equate to $200,000. No, I mean, if you've got a 10,000 pounds, that's a long way from someone who's got a million pounds. Exactly. It's a lot. But sure. not every fisher got a, uh, got a million pounds of course not. crab to catch. Right. It's certainly not. It's, you know, this this what's happening in the fishery right now. Um, you're seeing um, the 220 a pound. You cannot make an income. You cannot make it pay with, um, well, this year it's about 9,000 pounds of crab is what they're going to get. So you cannot make your business pay on nine thousand pound of crab at two twenty a pound when bait is two fifty. It, it, that's an impossibility. It is impossible to fish it, and and you know you're going to be in the hole. You're going in the red for that. Well, just like not everyone has a million pounds, mm-hmm. it's also the same can be said on the other end of the spectrum. Is not everyone is unable to make a bucket two twenty? Because I know people who absolutely say they can, and they're not in the business of losing money. They're not just doing it for for fun. They're doing it for profitability, and they say they can make a go of it at two twenty and not lose money. But this, the exact same point that you made is not everyone's got a million pounds. No, it's not. And not everybody has that million pounds. And you have to understand that these people that do have these million pounds, you know what? They're supporting the entire industry. They are are saying, no, we can probably fish it for two twenty a pound. But you know what? We know that if we do, the long-term game is what's going to be affected. You know what? You're never going to get any more than two twenty a pound. You're going to get less than that in years to come. That is what it's going to do. In like it's, it's like last year. If you went around on all the wharves on, uh, around around the bay, they would have told you when you were getting seven eighty a pound for crab last year. You know what? This is a bad sign. We know what the fishers knew what was going to happen. They knew it was going to bottom out. They knew what was coming. So you know what? You have all these people with a million pound quotas, or whatever. You have those people, and they are being supportive to the little guy right now, which is good. They're, they're, they're being supportive, and they're saying, no, we're not going to fish this because if we fish this, we are destroying the industry for years to come. Why would that be, though? Because the market will change year over year. As much as it was great last year, terrible this year, who knows what the future holds. So why would you're fishing— putting, You're putting millions of pounds of crab on the market at two twenty a pound. You're going to put millions of pounds of crab on the market at two twenty a pound. What do you think that's going to be when there's already crab in storage? All these uh, processors right now have crab in storage, and now they're getting cheap crab at two twenty a pound. Yeah, but none of that changes if it's three fifty a pound. Pardon? None of that changes if it was even three fifty a pound, for instance. They'd well, still have crab in st- cold storage. At two twenty a pound, and you're putting this cheap crab on the market. I mean, the value you're you're setting the value of your crab will certainly be less for another year. You're not going to grow. It's not going to grow in abundance. You're destroying your own market. That's that's the way it is. You know what? Fishers have seen this year after year after year, and I mean, at two twenty a pound. You cannot. It's not viable. They cannot have a viable business. The cost of everything in in the economy right now has increased. Groceries are through the roof. Uh, Everything has went up. The cost of everything has increased. And yet now the price of the crab has has went down. 
to two twenty a pound. You cannot make a go of it. A single okay. fellow with uh, three three other uh, crew members at uh, nine thousand pound of crab on their boat, they cannot fish that. They cannot okay. fish that. Well, only because we've reached 12 o'clock on the dot. We'll have to leave it there, but I appreciate making time for the show, Heather. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.